Welcome to the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast with Dr. Fuck and the Ayatollah of Alcohola, Ian Wadley, better known as Wadzilla. So enjoy another awesome, incredible episode of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. Bam, 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 diddly dee. Hey, Schmagamagav, it's me, Rick Springfield, and with me is... Oh yeah, Leif Garrett. Hell yeah, Leif. How's it going, bro? Uh, well, my career sucks better than that. I'm fine. Well, are you actually on the wagon or did you fall off again? Uh, no, I, I got into an accident on the wagon and I put my best friend in a wheelchair. Didn't you see behind the music? Was it a transsexual? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, oh no, I'm thinking of Danny Bonaducci. <laughs> He's the guy that beat up a transsexual. Well, well, you know what? I'm Wadzilla. I've done it all. Yeah. I haven't done a... I've never done a transsexual yet. Well, you know, there's time left, so... Yeah. Well, hey, dude, I'm I'm approaching like 105. Time's a ticket. I need to find me a tranny in ASAP. Yeah. Time's a dickin, a, a tippin, yeah, yeah. and a dickin you be a lickin. Yeah. Oh, Rob, we're going to sword fight, Ian. Me and that tranny are going to sword fight. Yeah. Like fucking lightsabers. Yeah. Well, uh, my grandmother's Chinese. Remember, I'm not packing much. All right. We'll stand closer. <laughs> I got to find a little big tranny so I don't feel so <laughs> inadequate. Oh, if I had a nickel for every time I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up, man? What are we doing? Oh, we're doing Rockin' Pod Part 2 because Part 1 is long as fuck. I mean, it would have yeah. been long as fuck if we made it one part. Yeah, well, every everybody was happy that shit's finally getting back to normal and we're recording again. And uh, people loving the episode. And uh, yeah, but there's there's more to be told. There's more stories. Yeah, and more interviews. Yes. Pushy, pushy, pussy, pussy, Bitch. pushy. Oh man, check out that YouTube video. You, you will be amused. I actually watched it last night again because I haven't watched it. You know, I just edited, put it up, and then last night I was like, man, I never really looked at the finished product. Let me look at it, and man, it's hysterical. Oh, I've watched it about three times, bushy, and bushy. It, it never gets old. And it's so funny seeing the progression of the night, yeah. <laughs> you know, because in the, in the video, there's like seamless. Uh, transitions and stuff then there's a part where i got drunk and put my hair in pigtails and then, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah toward the end yeah i noticed that transition yeah. oh man my favorite line is bushy 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 bitch but my second favorite very close second is where he says where lee says thanks society for letting me sponge off you <laughs> that shit rules you can you can smell the sincerity yeah and let me tell you, man, there was so much alcohol in that room being consumed by everybody involved. And I didn't have a drop and I felt drunk. It just, what was it? Secondhand alcohol. Oh, I was, I felt Bushy drunk. Had to, and Bushy had to throw it up. That was top shelf liquor. Thanks to Charlie and Daniela. Yeah. Hill. And, uh, but you know, me and Lee kept it down. Metal Mike kept it down. <laughs> I don't know what Bushy's problem is. Yeah, he's lucky I didn't have a beer. I would have thrown up before him. Because I'm a wuss. 
Well, we should tell everybody we already recorded an episode. We're about to record a second. Oh yeah, yeah, we're recording like crazy now. Shit's gonna start coming out. Uh, we're taking care of everybody who took care of us. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for you guys, you know, we wouldn't have all these awesome interviews and everything that's going on. We are back into full mode, uh, you know, recording mode, and uh, let's do it. Yeah. yeah just we're, just we're doing this. We're doing this intro, then we're recording another episode tonight. That's how crazy we are. Now. Exactly. And as we speak, we already have one in a can, just like that future tranny I'm going to meet. Hey, hey. Yeah. Here we go. Part two. Electric Boogaloo. All right. <laughs> well, our next guest is uh, now uh, a podcast superstar. And, uh, you know, he just used to be my friend Josh Toomey, who I did a little show with called Diablos and Podcastica while we were on break. The one and only Josh Toomey. You're talking about Scab Fuck. <laughs> scab Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, that guy, Scam Fuck. Hey, Good old Josh. He all he wants in, in reality, but here in my little world, he'll always be Scab Dr. Fuck. <laughs> but I have uh, an announcement to make, Ian, before okay. the interview. Um, him and I started a podcast. Oh, good luck. No, it's, it's been a rule. It's called Judas Priest Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how podcasting works. He says he's not a fan of Judas Priest, and he gets to interview KK Downing. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody else, everybody. I'm so happy for Josh. Uh, man, he he was already doing good. Uh, always been a good friend of both of ours. And, yeah, um, and let me tell you, man, y'all should check out. I told him this. I, I spoke with him recently. Um, his interview with Jason Eastman's awesome. Go check that out. Yeah, yeah, no, Josh, Josh is awesome. He's on a Slipknot network now, right? Yeah, uh, he's part of Notcast. Not, not, that's big league shit. May not yeah. be Slipknot, but they're like one of the biggest bands ever. So good for you. Yeah. And what's really neat is they just showed uh, footage from Notfest, and you know, they got huge screens on the side of the stage. I mean, this was a big event. And in between the bands, they've got, like, you know, Toomey on one and who he's interviewing on the other on the big screen. So all these people are getting to see him podcast. Wow. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, and he's getting his, his pick of everybody he wants now. And uh, it could happen to a nicer guy. I, I mean, he's really uh, a great dude. We're still great friends. Uh, I think everything worked out for the best, though, because he, he moved to the next level. And I'm back where I belong on your coattails. And, uh, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, after that intro, there's nothing left to do but to play the interview. Here's the one and only Josh Toomey. We're here with the one and only Josh Toomey of the Talk To Me podcast. How you doing, Josh? What's up, Ralph? What's up, Ian? How we doing? Uh, also known as Scab Ralph, right? <laughs> Mortal Kombat world. <laughs> I always say, man, they got it. They at least should have said thank you for letting, for keeping Ian on the airwaves uh, while you know you guys had your spat. 
the, the fans love you like you love Judas Priest. Hey, well, love some Judas Priest now, right? Yeah, you you get to talk to uh, KK Downing, and we get to talk to Lee Gertzman. You know, <laughs> there is no God. There hey, is no God. But having to deal with you for however many months now, I know why Ralph kicked you to the curb. So. <laughs> I kicked my ass to the curb. I I did not fire Ian. I fired myself. Yeah, I fired myself from Ian. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. fuck you both. <laughs> when I heard you jo- you you fired Ian, I, I said, oh, how shocking. <laughs> you knew it wasn't you at that point. <laughs> well, at least you got Ian on Blabbermouth, he told me earlier today. A couple times probably, wasn't it? I, don't, I saw you walk in the fucking hotel yesterday, and then I went, it was on Blabbermouth. Josh Toomey walks into fucking podcast that he's too good for. So, so with all these kill, I mean, you get KK Downing, you get so many killer interviews. How sore are your knees? Very sore, yeah. You always got to cup the balls, you know. You got to make sure. How, how are your gag reflexes? <laughs> That's how I get the good ones, you know. That thing. No, I mean, you know, it's a it's a catch twenty two. If you have bad gag reflexes, that's hot. If you don't, it's still hot. But you got to fake it sometimes. So you're like, oh, this is so big, you know, uh, uh, you know. Oh, it's too much, you know. You got to fake it for Ian because he's not packing much, right? Hey, tell us, tell us about the uh, the knotfest.com and everything, man, because that's a pretty big deal. So we're getting serious now. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I want to hear this. You know, I'm proud of you. I'm very happy for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, about a year ago or so when the pandemic kind of really hit, knotfest took their .com, turned it into like a media company, and so they have a few shows, and then they, they also launched their own Twitch channel. And they're running a Twitch channel, kind of like an MTV from, so like 4 to midnight Eastern, you'll have content all day long. And then they asked me to come on to do a show on Thursdays, uh, 5 to 7 Eastern on Twitch, not Fest official Twitch. And uh, after a couple of episodes, they're like, we'd like to have your podcast too, you know, so podcast is there now too. And So is, is this like a Slipknot thing or, oh, okay, yeah, so yeah. everything is like associated with Slipknot and shit like that? Yeah, it's technically uh, 5B Artist Management who manages Slipknot, but they also manage like Megadeth and a bunch of other bands too, but they all, they put on Knotfest, and so the same company, is, it's all, all under the same umbrella. So basically, you know, when you got the, you know, when you got hired, you're like, okay, fuck the op. I'm going for the big money. I did it. No, it definitely, it, it actually happened after the Diablos. But uh, probably, you know, if they would have went back and listened to a couple of those episodes, they'd be like, I don't know, man. You got a poor taste in coke. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's an influence of Slipknot because, you know, you definitely pulled uh, Joey Jordson on me, you know. You know I'm gonna die soon, right? right yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll put in a nice tribute. I'll put in a nice tribute video to you, and be like, oh man, I'm so sorry to see him go. How many times did you have to go to the doctor for your fingers from all the editing from Ian? Well, I got to a point with him. I just like let's just do a live stream, and then and then I just ripped the straight audio and put it straight out. I didn't even like. So Twenty minutes of Ian repeating himself. <laughs> It's a copy of a copy. You would you would look at the uh, the wave files and it would be like a little section of me and then a long section of Ian and then a little section of me. Well, I wish we had more time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm enjoying this. Uh, <laughs> now you know the hell I go through. And then as the as the episode starts, you know, it starts up pretty good and then it just deteriorates into Ian drunker and drunker, drinking like peppermint schnapps and everything else. 
Do you have a stand-in once he passes out? Uh, yeah. Well, the last time we did it in a live stream, we had Chris Sinzak on, and then Ian just turned his computer off at one point. <laughs> so. uh, we got. We got. Oh, we got Rick Fox. We're gonna have to ask you to leave. Well, it was good to see you guys. <laughs> you rule. Well, our next interview uh, was one that got postponed about three or four times, but I was I was really looking forward to, and that was former MTV VJ Matt Pinfield. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it took a lot to get it, but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we did. But boy, can this guy talk! And yeah. it was. It was unfortunate because we had to cut him off because we had to go interview Greg Bissonette. Uh, so, but there, there wasn't much we could do. He, he was uh, late getting there and then had some other commitments, some other panels he had to be part of, you know, with, with the other VJs. And, uh, but still, he made time for us and was, was very courteous and uh, very sweet. But we didn't get to ask a lot of questions and... As you listen to this episode, you'll see why. We are here with the one, the only Matt Penfield. Uh, super excited to have you here. I mean, we, we only waited for two VJs. Well, you and Randy the Redwoods. You know, but, but we'll, wait, we'll wait for you. No, thank you, guys. I mean, I, I apologize. Earlier today, I was, uh, you know, like I was over my... My friend lives in Nashville. Uh, he's Glenn Campbell's son. So whenever I come out here, I stay in uh, Campbell Estate, you know? Yeah. And Glenn Campbell was a badass guitar player. He played on so many great records over the years. It's, uh, it was quite an amazing artist. But his son was like my neighbor in Los Angeles. So whenever I come out here, I just stay with friends instead of hotels. It's just the coolest way to do it. But, you know, I'm psyched to be here. You know, I love that it's a convention that's completely dedicated to rock podcasts. You know, for me, rock and roll, I always tell people uh, there is always, the, if you look hard enough, there's always great rock and roll. There's rock, there's metal, there's rock, always, and there are young bands starting up. All the, all the people that say rock is dead, it's just bullshit, and they, you know, there's, there's no, no merit in that, you know what I mean, at all. Right? Well, I think you got to work harder for it now to find it. Yeah. You do and you don't. You have more access because of the internet, but you it's not spoon-fed to you like it used to be by MTV. Right. Now you got to do the research, but there's a lot you can find. There is great stuff. And, and the thing is, there are there never stop being young bands and young people who want to pick up guitars and rock out and drums and bass. I think, and that's the true thing, but you're right. I, I think the problem, a lot of my, what I see the problem as is, you know, uh, there is more access than ever but there's more people that are just reaching for the lowest branch on a tree and just listening to whatever, like their friends is in their top 40. So if you want to find rock, you got to look for it. You know what I mean? They're, they're, that's the problem. As, as much as there's more access, there's less curation. And that's why your podcast is important. That's why it's important to talk about music and talk about rock and roll and let people know what's going on there with artists that they know from the past or might have missed and with new artists that are doing metal and doing well, I gotta tell you, uh, when you first came on the scene, when I first discovered you was MTV, and I felt more akin with you than, no assault to anybody else, but you seem legitimate, you seem like you were in the trenches. Where were you born, I mean, when you start getting into music, what location were you living in? Alright, so I was born in Athens, Georgia, but I didn't live there long. I mean, my dad was in school at UGA, he was a marine officer who got discharged, he had a heart attack at a very young age when I used to give meth to the, to the soldiers, you know, and I, like his heart didn't take it too well. 
my heart, I got must have got my heart from my mother's side because I definitely did my share party and I'm still here breathing, which is a shock. I know, but no, but honestly, I just loved rock and roll from the time and music from the time I was a young kid. I grew up in New Jersey, so where I was in central New Jersey was kind of a cool place to be. It was closer to New York City where I was in a town called East Brunswick, which is right next to like. Sarahville, the town of Bon Jovi and Skid Row are from, right? But there was always, uh, I grew up in that town, so I had access, even though I would say, and this is true, I didn't think New York radio was the best. That's why I wanted to get in radio. They didn't play as many, like I would go to a record store and buy a record by a band like Priest, or saw, saw Priest opening for Stars and Aria Speedwagon. So I was, I loved Stars, I went to see Stars. So I would read in Circus Magazine or Cream Magazine or I would look for rock bands, and if a record album look, cover looked cool, I'd go out and buy it. Um, so I was always searching for new rock from the time I was a young kid. I loved rock, and I wanted to be in radio, like I wanted, but I wanted to turn people on to bands. So I'd always go to school and bring records to school, and you know, uh, and it was always, you know, so that's how when I was a kid, you know, I discovered things like Thin Lizzy UFO and, you know, Priest. I just loved finding new rock and if it looked cool if it looked like a rock band i i would throw down the money to 3.99 for the vinyl album or 2.99 whatever it was and that's how i found out about a lot of bands um, because i was just hungry for new music all the time and i never really liked it's really interesting how i became i loved radio i wanted to be in radio but then my purpose was to turn people on to bands that weren't getting exposure that was what my thing was all about with rock and you know when I started in college radio it was the same thing I would go I remember college radio at the time was playing just uh, like just a dead end zap and when I came there I, I was playing rock punk like post punk whatever just playing all different things because I just thought hey man there's this great band nobody knows about it you're missing, people are missing this great record. So I was always known as the kid in school that was like bringing in a new album to turn people on to. You know what I mean? And so that hunger is real. And I, I think that it was, I was grateful for with MTV was they let me be myself, which, uh, but that was the difference. I wasn't there because I was an actor. I wasn't there because I was trying. I was, certainly wasn't there because I was a pretty boy because I wasn't. I was a short, bald, chubby dude, man. But I didn't, you know, but I love the music and that compassion and conviction. I never expected it to translate as well as it did. I just was being myself. And when they came back to me and said, hey, man, we're doing this research and people love you, really are connecting with you. They, they, they feel like, you know, and then I would say, you know, it's like that whole thing. It's like your friend next door as opposed to, and you can always tell I wasn't reading. You can tell I cared about the music. You know, that oh, was yeah. a difference. I mean, the, he already said it, but. You know, as, as a child who grew up on MTV, yeah. you were somebody that I think everybody related to. And, you know, like somebody like, like Ricky Rack. A lot of people love him or hate him, you know, and have very strong opinions. But you were a guy who came on at a weird time in MTV's history, but you just had the sincerity about you. Like, I remember seeing you on 120 Minutes and stuff. And it, as much as I love metal, you know, I love The Cure and Susie and the Banshees as much. And, and you know, seeing you host that, there was just, you could tell you were the real deal. And I think that was refreshing at MTV where it could be very packaged. It could be this or that. So you were an incredible asset. And you were somebody, you know, all of us would talk about MTV and everybody had their favorite DJs and stuff like that. 
I've never heard anybody say, ah, that Matt Pinfield. There is, he's cool. I like him. And and your personality and your passion came across, and that's why I was so excited. Like I was hoping to meet, you know, all of the BJs that were here today. But when I found out you were the one, I was like, thank God, because this is the guy. This is the the man of the people, and and I'm so happy you're here, because you you really were an inspiration at a at a weird time, and and just it seemed real with you. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I mean, that means a lot to me. I'm very grateful. I always, I, I remember looking at an article in the New York Post where one of the bosses there said, well, we just let Matt be Matt. And that was, what greater gift was that for me to, like, they, they would let me be myself and talk about music passionately. They weren't trying to dial me back. Because you could tell I was into it. I mean, it was just, it was just, you know, and, but I'm really grateful I had that platform. I always say that. I go, you know, no matter what people think about MTV, MTV was very influential, and it was a great time. Hey, Craig, what's up, brother? My brother, Craig Gass, very, very good friend of mine, the comedian. Who's, yeah, a lot of, I love Craig. We're, we're brothers from, uh, you know, we hang out back in Los Angeles when we're, when we're new, and he's not on the road, and I'm not on the road. He's part of my crew of guys like Mike from Allison Chains and, uh, you know, Rex Brown from Pantera and a bunch of dudes. We all, we're all, like, part of a crew that hang out, you know, a bunch of rock dudes. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, for me, you know, I, I'm just so grateful that I came at the time that I did because, you know, timing is really everything. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, after that, it became about the pretty boys again, didn't it? Like uh, in a big way, I think, uh, you know, like or, you know, I, and for me, I, I am grateful I got that platform. I mean, you know, it's, it was it was amazing. But I think I never I said something earlier on the panel. I said, you know. I was doing a radio in New Jersey, doing rock radio, and uh, I knew I needed to make a move because the radio station had like gone as far as it could go. I had a daughter to raise. I love music, and I had the opportunity. I'd filled in on 120 minutes on MTV, but I also, you know, knew that there was an opportunity to be in the music department, which was picking the videos, which I thought was important because that was always my thing. My my motivation was always to turn people on into music and get a voice for artists that needed a voice. So I had this incredible opportunity to interview for that job and be one of the ten people to pick the videos for MTV. And uh, and so that and because I had won a couple like national music director awards for the radio station I was at in Jersey, even though it was a small market, medium market. Um, when I got that opportunity, I left. And I'll be honest, I never thought I'd be on TV again or radio. It was crazy. I had filled in doing 120 minutes. The day that I left that radio station, I feel like an eight-hour shift because I, you know, they, I was the boss. Uh, and they were like, man, you can stay on. We know you want to stay on. I just did this all long show. I remember Bruce Springsteen was listening to it because it was the Jersey Shore. And he was so nice. He, he called up the bosses at MTV and said, hey, man, I got my people's. Not from the corporate world, man. He's a real guy. You guys look out for him over there. Like, he made an endorsement call for me. I found out later that Springsteen called the bosses at MTV to tell them to look out for me, which is, uh, I mean, you couldn't pay Bruce yeah. to do that Ricky for anybody. Had Rose, you had the boss. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was cool, you know. So, I mean, I was very grateful. That I, and I waited seven years to run. I ran into Bruce. I happened to be working at his record label by then. I was Seven years later, I'm working at... Uh, at Columbia Records, um, he brings in a rising and uh, he plays it for us. And then we're kind of going by him. I go, Bruce, man, I uh, I always want to thank you. It was so nice. I heard you twice went to the bosses. He did it twice. What was so crazy is 
he was rehearsing for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and brought like people from the music department were going to see this Michael Jackson video at Sony Studios for the History double CD that came out. There was this crazy bombastic over the top video of like helicopters going around a statue of Michael Jackson. And they had like, they'd reel in the music department from MTV, which I was part of. They'd reel in the music department from VH1. Then they'd have like Diane Sawyer and Tom Brokaw coming in and see it. It was like this whole thing. But I found out that later that night, when the MTV bosses went there, Bruce was rehearsing with the E Street Band for his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the story's unbelievable. Because the woman who was a British woman who was in charge of the VJ said to me, she goes, you know, Bruce was asking about you last night. I go, what do you mean? And I thought he'd forgotten me. I go, he's kind of forgotten me already. <laughs> She's like, no. Um. And she told me this story that Bruce is rehearsing and they, the bosses from MTV, they kind of walk into the room quietly while he's rehearsing. He turns around and sees them. And uh, they go, Bruce, how you doing? He goes, I'm good. He goes, and he just goes, you guys taking care of Pinfield? <laughs> And they go, yeah, he goes, all right. And then turns around and starts playing again. And that's all he said to the bosses of MTV. That was after the call, four months later. So I waited seven years to thank him. And I remember walking up to him and going, Bruce, man, I got to just tell you how much I appreciate that you you, you called for me. That was uh, unbelievably kind. He goes, oh, no problem, man. Of course, man, don't worry about that at all. He goes, what do you think of the new album? Like, it was so great. It was like so unassuming, you know, because that's Bruce, you know what I mean? He didn't dwell on it, but he was like, of course, man, thank you, know. And it was never really, never spoke about it again, but it was just so cool. And then we were talking about how he recorded The Rising. It was unbelievable, guys. I never thought I was going to be on the radio again or TV. I mean, I, and I didn't want MTV to think that I had a hidden agenda because I was grateful to be able to go there and help artists. Like, it was going to be okay with me. I could live with myself. It wasn't about ego, man. It wasn't, I wasn't some super ego guy. I just cared about music, and I was like, you know, I got a daughter to raise. I want to... I want to be there to make a difference and get some people, artists played, man. That's what I want to do. And like, I want to be in that meeting and fight for artists. And sure enough, that's what I got to do, you know? And then I'd be, you know, fighting for people that buzz clips and buzz clips would really help an artist jump from like 100,000 records to gold. Like it was unbelievable. The, the um, influence of MTV and the power of, of the video spins that were there. So I never thought I was going to do anything again, like but be behind the scenes. And then one, I mean, just a couple of months, few months go by, and all of a sudden they go, "Hey, uh, Oasis are coming in. You already did Pesh Mode." They go, uh, "They don't want to be. They don't want to. They don't want to host. We're going to have you interview them, and we'll have you do it for a couple of weeks, and we'll see how it goes." And so once the show was over that day, they go, well, "You got. We did a 180. You got the show, and that's how it started." And then. After doing 120, then they started doing that research, as I told you. And I remember the UMTV rap guys coming up to me, and the UMTV rap saying to me, hey, dude, the black and Spanish community is feeling you because you're real, because of knowledge, which was a beautiful thing. That I, got. I mean, I didn't expect any of that stuff. I was talking about it in the panel here, how I, the first time I got recognized on the street in New York City, I thought it was dudes from, like, my hometown, like, people there. I was like, what? They're like, we're from Ohio. I'm like, what? And you know, when you all of a sudden realize that you're actually, you, you people recognize it. And uh, good thing is I never let any of that shit get to my head. I've never been that kind of guy, no matter what. Never, ever, I never, ever acted like an asshole. You'd never hear me say, don't you know who I am like these other people do. I just hate that bullshit. 
you gotta be humble and you gotta fucking, you know, man, you gotta stay grounded. Brother, we appreciate you doing this. Unfortunately, we got a couple, we got slammed in, we gotta do a live show. I apologize. No, don't bother. It's fun talking to you guys. All right, well, there you go. That's why we couldn't ask uh, too many questions because, boy, he had a lot of answers. <laughs> but again, a super nice guy, and, and we even told him we'd like to have him back on the show and talk to him a little bit more. And he gave us his contact info. So uh, down the road, you know, we knock out some more of these fan episodes. I would love to have him on because this guy's got some fucking stories. And uh, a very nice guy. Well, this next interview uh, I was very excited about. And that's Pamela DeBars. Yeah. Which I, which I get corrected on right away. And really, the interview goes downhill after that. <laughs> I uh, I pronounce her name Pamela DeBarnes, and uh, I actually, I thought that's what it was. Uh, she corrected me and gave me a, you fucking drunk, fat fuck, you know, look. And uh, yeah, it didn't go much better after that. And uh, she's very soft-spoken. So uh, I don't know how much this is going to come out. Ralph's going to try to work some magic. But uh, this one is actually the only interview that I ended prematurely on purpose. <laughs> Just because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what she was comfortable talking about. And Ralph's like, who the fuck are you? Did I fuck you? Uh, <laughs> you know, but... Well, I was like, wow. Ian knew her name. I, I always thought her, name, her, her real name was Rupee Whore. Yeah, I, I think at one point you asked me, what's that groupie whore's name? <laughs> and, and I told you the wrong info. <laughs> but but here it is, if you can make it out, our interview with Pamela DeBarnes. All right, we are here with the legendary Pamela DeBarnes. DeBarnes. Uh, DeBarnes. No answer. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> author, musician, uh, rock scene legend, member of the GTOs. Uh, oh my God! It, it is so so neat to meet you. You have a rich history in rock and roll. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you are you are very well known. And uh, what brought you to Rock and Pod? What made you decide to give this a chance? Well, I have a podcast called Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, where I interview all kinds of people, from Alice Cooper to Susie Quattro. Whoever you want, you know, come listen to me. I would, I would love to. Because <laughs> I know you have some stories. Yeah, yeah, I tell stories too, of course. Yeah, we banter back and forth. And uh, oh my God, the, the Laurel Canyon scene and, and Zappa's house and stuff. What, what, what was that like? And you used to babysit for. I was the living governess for years for the wow. Zappa family, Moon and Dweezil. Yeah. Oh my God. It, that had to be a crazy scene, you know, of all the different musicians and everything coming in now. There's a lot going on, but it's not as crazy as you might imagine since, since Frank was anti-drug. Right. So it wasn't as wild as you might imagine. Very colorful right. and very exciting, but not, you know, not uh, dangerous, really. Right. <laughs> but but you also had, you know, the flip side of that, you, were, you also were around a lot of crazy stuff. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And, Keith was one of my guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you can imagine, yeah. Oh, my God. You have to read I'm with the band to find that out. 
<laughs> well, I, a lot of people have read that. It's a very successful book. Yeah. And, and you have multiple books out now. And is is that your passion now, or are you finding more your, uh, you know, into your writing? Well, my passion really is teaching writing. That's what I do. Yeah. I've been doing it for over 20 years. I teach memoir workshops so people can write about themselves and get all of their grief and agony and passion and joy out on the page. It's very cathartic. So I've been doing that for a while. My most recent book is Let It Bleed, How to Write a Rockin' Memoir, which helps people write their stories. We met a woman the other night who was here. She was here specifically for you. Oh, and, 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 and her aspirations are to write, and she said she was very inspired by you. Yeah. I wish I could run into her now. Uh, well, I'm sure you're probably going to meet her at some point. I don't think <laughs> she was all about, you know, and I, I thought that was so awesome that, you know, you're the whole reason she came to this whole event was to meet you because, you know, she wants to get into writing and, and she found you very inspirational. So what you're doing is working. Yeah, good, good. Well, I, I teach here in Nashville. Okay. All, all these different cities I teach and I teach twice a year. So my class here is in a couple days. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's incredible. Do uh, you have any stories you want to share with us that, that you can share that uh, that aren't in the book, maybe? Well, I, you know what? I wrote it all in the book, to be honest. I wrote it all in the book. I did not leave anything out. Um, I can tell the story that's in the book. I mean, I've got plenty of them. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to go into details, but is there anything in the book about you actually witnessing or being in a room with Keith Moon while he was trashing it? Trashing it? No, but I. But uh, he was kicked out of every hotel uh, in LA at one point, and so we had to find a place to stay um, that was not in the LA area or that, that he'd never been heard of there. But it just didn't work, so he had to pretend to be someone else. So we went to Western Costume, which was one of his favorite places in LA, and he got a, a long velvet cloak with ermine all around it and a little crown and we went to the Century Plaza Hotel where all the presidents stayed and he pretended to be a count from a non-existent country and his his roadie Dougal led the way and I just stood there with Keith going whoa boy this is going to be good anyway we got to stay at the Century Plaza this count from some non-existent country and I for two weeks and one and there was a huge fountain across the street still there and um, one day Keith had me stand out on the balcony he said I'm gonna I'm gonna show you something wait right here and I went oh boy okay and a few minutes later I saw him hustle himself across the street with a giant box of Tide and he dumped it in the fountain walked all the way around the fountain and dumped it in and we came back up and we stood on that balcony and watched those bubbles shoot in the air at least two blocks high and rolling down the street stopped all the traffic and he never got caught he loved doing these things but not getting caught it made him very gleeful was he always on 10 did he ever like ever Right before he fell asleep, sometimes he would mellow out, but that's about it. You know, nowadays he would be bipolar. He really needed help, you know. Um, yeah, back then there, there was no, no diagnosis. No, no, no. He really needed one. 
And he was such a sweet, generous soul, but he was tortured also. So I had to deal with that side of him too. So, and also you were friends with Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin back then. Was that also like debauchery with them? Because there are stories about, what is it, the riot house? Yeah, I stayed at the riot house with Jimmy a lot. Uh, he was my boyfriend, you know, off and on. And I never saw any of that. He always protected me from it. I heard about it. He never got involved in it, and, and the band really didn't, except for John Bonham. And he would only get involved in that stuff when he was really drunk. And it was mainly the roadies. And yeah, there was some stuff you hear about, but, but the band, the actual band, were not really involved in it, you know. Sometimes they would watch a little bit, but they were very careful not to get involved in anything too horrible. <laughs> and he was always protective of me, and, and you know, and he never wanted me around any of that stuff. So, were you of age back then when you were with Jim Page? Oh yeah, I was you, always of age. Yeah. I was okay, always of age. He was, he, that was later. That was later. Yeah. And I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, about a little bit about the GTOs. W was that something you were like really excited about, or was that just more like? A mad creation of Franks. Both. Both? <laughs> yeah. I was very excited about it. Because there were no all-girl groups back then. There was one, Fanny, was the, and you know, the Motown girls, but they it was different. We were an actual rock and roll group, if you want to call us that. We were like performance artists, but we were dancing with the mothers of invention. And Frank just got his label at that point. And he thought we we had stories to tell. He thought we were fascinating girls and we were wild, crazy teenage girls. And he always liked to capture moments in time, you know. He always wanted to let people have their say. He could pull stuff out of people like nobody ever could. And he just wanted to form a band with us. We were just thrilled. I mean, we got to go in the studio with him and Lowell George. They co-produced. And then we had Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart sing, and Graham Parsons and Hillman came down, but Frank said, nah, we don't need you to play on him. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> Graham even said, I'll play the tambourine. Frank said, nah, it's all right. <laughs> I was horrified. I mean, that's a real eclectic time of, you know, when he starts bizarre and, and straight, you know, there's, you know, GTOs, uh, Wild Man Fisher, uh, Alice Cooper. We all hung out, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, what an eclectic label, you know, and, a, and an outlet for that. That's... Well, he was always ahead of his time in every kind of way. Was was there ever part of you that wanted to take the GTOs farther? Or? Well, we tried, yeah. Frank broke the group up after a while because some of the girls got arrested for drugs, and he was anti-drug. Sure, yes. So, um, we, it fell apart for a while, but we tried to get it back together. When our album came out, he finally put it out. For a little while he was threatening not to because of the girls getting arrested. But he put it out and it sounded, to me it sounds great. You know, it captures a, a moment in time just like he was trying to do. But we tried. We tried to carry it on. We were supposed to tour with Todd Rundgren but it didn't, it didn't happen. Has, has there ever been any talk, you know, recently of, you know, surviving members doing anything or? 
you're the only one left? Well, Sparky is alive, but she doesn't talk about the GTOs. Mercy died a year ago this week, yeah. so uh, it was really hard. Because Mercy and I were carrying a torch together. <laughs> well, I, it, it's got to be amazing that, I mean, you were just part of rock history. I mean, you... Yeah, I know, and at the time I knew it, really. Yeah. Because, it, you know, you could go out, and then one night, you could see Zeppelin, the birds, the doors, Beefheart, Flying Weirder Brothers, and one night in Hollywood. Right. So, you know, you had to pick and choose. And I, the one band I never missed was the Flying Weirder Brothers. What's it? Flying Weirder Brothers, my okay. favorite band ever. Uh, and, and it's... It's hard because you know you just don't see that same kind of scene these days, or that. Yeah, exactly. And, and the passion of me, and I really feel like I love events like this, but it's grasping at what's left. You know? Then take me back. You know? I, I don't know how you know. I've become a talking head. I've become a historian, of, you know, in a weird way because there are very few people really left that were in the thick of all of that. At Altamont and all this stuff I went to. But it's important that you that you fill that role and that you know you keep the stories alive and. Yeah, people are still curious. They're always going to be curious, but you know, at least I'm alive right this minute to tell the stories. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you so much. Is there anything you want to promote while you're here? Anything else you want to discuss? My website is HamilaDayBarOfficial.com. I. I have all my writing workshops there. I sell books and photos and all that stuff there. And um, my podcast, Pamela DeVar's Pajama Party. I will definitely check that out. <laughs> I have a column at pleasekillme.com nice. where I, I elaborate on my stories. They're much longer than in the books. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear that. I encourage all our listeners to check that out. You are a true legend, and thank I thank you. you so much for your time. It's an honor. Can we get a picture with you? Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we're going to go down in the history as the only two guys she's met and didn't sleep with. So <laughs> we, we, we might have struck out, but, hey, at least we got to meet her. And, and I want to thank for her time. She was nice, but it, it was a long day, and uh, it was very hard to hear. Yeah. But now, now we go into somebody, holy cow, could this guy talk? And uh, but a very nice guy with a lot of shit to say, and and it had some history with Ralph, but he was a very nice guy. Talking about the one and only Rick Fox. All right, uh, we got here, Mr. Rick Fox. How you doing, Rick? Good. How are you guys? Doing great, man. Um, so what, what's up? Uh, I saw you guys play last night, Cold Day in Hell. That was a really great performance. Uh, and uh, Right to Rock. Yes, we did. Was that the first time you performed that song? I have never performed that song before. That's, I had a, took out my cell phone at home, pulled it up, and listened to it over the cell phone, to, you know, over the YouTube, to, to, to learn it. You know? I mean, Cold Day in Hell, of course I know, and, and, and Cold Gin did, but yeah. I never played Right to Rock before. And it's a different version. Uh, in 2019, when they did the Keel Fest in, in, uh, at the El Rosa Villa in Columbus, Ohio, Everything was tuned down, so I went back to YouTube and I was watching the videos. See, you know, I mean, it's a simple song, but I never played it before. So, pays off. When when uh, Inge was out, did you guys were you still in the band when they had? Was it Mitch Perry? That 
Ingve uh, and I left at the same time. Oh, okay. And he, he was already scouting while he was a Steeler. People were approaching him, and he was looking, he was networking, looking at his options. And uh, the day that I was moving out of the Steeler mansion, which is kind of an inside joke because it was anything but a mansion, roach infested, you know, three, three storefronts gutted. Uh, I happened to be playing uh, a Talus album. Billy Sheehan, Dallas. Mitch comes walking in. He says, who's that guitar player? That's fantastic. He says, that's not a guitar player. That's Billy Sheehan. He's a bass player. He's a friend of mine. So I think I'm instrumental in uh, uh, alerting Mitch who Talis was, which he eventually wound up playing in. Like that. So it's, it's those six degrees of you know, connection. Yeah. So you go, you go way back to the New York scene where... Was, I mean, I could have my facts. Were you dating Peter Chris's sister? Was it something like that? That was when I was in high school. And that was before like Kiss, obviously. Before they were Kiss. Peter had just, uh, he came out of a band called Chelsea. They had one album out. And then there was, uh, the bass player had committed suicide for whatever reason. And that, that broke Peter's heart. Um, the band broke up. And then uh, he started putting the ads in the papers in New York. Gene and Paul contacted him and the rest is history. Once he was in with them, they were rehearsing at the loft, Peter would invite us to come up there. So me, the Criscola sisters, my friend John, and Amory, us kids from the neighborhood that all knew the family, we'd go in to watch them rehearse up at the loft, and it was just the three of them. And one of the first things I noticed on Gene's SVT, it said Jack Bruce stenciled on the side of it. So he actually had one of Jack Bruce's SVT cabins. Yeah. You know, and then it would, they would rehearse three-piece. And then we, we missed a few rehearsals. We missed the actual auditions. It's closed, you know. And then the next time we went up there, there's this guy leaning against the wall in a gray pinstripe suit, orange sneaker, purple sneaker, like that. And he's playing these ripping leads. We've never seen or heard anything like this before. That was Ace. So. And you saw one of the first shows. Uh, you were at one of the first Kiss shows, right? Well, the Diplomat. That was the first one. I don't know if that was the first one. It was one of the first ones. That was where they were really coming out, you know, promoting and, and inviting all these people from the industry. Uh, Bill O'Coin was sitting behind us, you know, and he's like, he's getting ready to leave. We're like, no, you can't leave. you got to stay and see this band, you know. So, uh, you know, and then uh, this is before, you know, uh, printing, printing on things, printing. I was always thinking promotion, promotion, promotion. And I bought a whole bag of balloons, blew them up, each one, drew the KISS logo on them, and then deflated them. Well, if they're printed properly, it's gonna stay. But if you do it with a marker and then you let the air out, you, you touch it, it'll smear. So I had a cigar box carefully packed with all these balloons. And we get to the show and I start handing them out. We blow them up. Now the, now the logo's big. And then Kiss comes on stage and we all stood up and throw all these balloons at them. They didn't know it was coming. Gene stomping on the balloons like that. I was always trying to you know, be an idea guy, you know? Like like uh, Billy Blazjowski in, in uh, Night Shift. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm an idea man, Chuck, I'm an idea. Get the, get the cold starfish, you know, with the mayonnaise in it. I was always like that. So whenever I got into a band, I would say, what can I bring to the table? What, what can bring us more attention? So that was kind of where it kind of started. Uh, you came up with the name for Wasp? Yes. yes. Uh, actually, I believe it was Randy Kuyper confirmed it. Yes. I was staying at Blackie's Cottage, and you know the days before cell phones, 1982, and and had his his phone had a really long extension cord, 
sorry, I got a call from a friend in New York. I was walking around in the courtyard outside this, this cottage. There's a huge avocado tree, and there's leaves all over the ground. So I'm like this with my feet, and I'm just kind of kicking over leaves, and it was a hornet, like that, and I stepped on it. And then I turned the leaf back over, and it wasn't completely dead. It was still throbbing, and you can see the tail moving. And I always associate things with TV and film, and, and sound bites, and you know, taglines. And I'm thinking, wow, it looks like the old logo from the Green Hornet show. Because it's curved, it's got the stinger, and it had an optic pattern behind it. And it go, make this weird noise. So I went back in the house. Blackie's like this watching the Yankee game on the TV. I said, hey, I got an idea for a band name. Because he had said, we, we got to have something new. There's too many bands named Sister. It's White Sister, Twisted Sister. We need something completely new. And I said, well, I got an idea. I said, I just stepped on a wasp outside. Wasp? Remember the Green Hornet logo? And he goes, he's thinking, he's thinking. It's a good idea. He goes, keep thinking like that. And then he trademarked it. The rest well, of <laughs> we had rehearsal a couple of nights later. At the end of rehearsal, all the four of us, me, Tony, Randy, and Blackie, he says, we got a new name for the band. And Tony goes, what is it? And he goes, Wasp. Tony goes, Wasp? Who names a band after a bug? I said, the Beatles? <laughs> no, spelled different. The Scorpions? You know, and that's when the name was born. So technically, that makes all four of us co-founders. Blackie liked the idea of Wasp, but he kept it. And I don't remember this. They did one of their first shows after he kicked me out. And I must have called up the club to threaten about the name. And Blackie added the periods. Couldn't get around that. So that gave him uh, uh, the idea to go, well, we can call it whatever you want you think it is. So ultimately, it wound up becoming we're all side players because that's what it turned into. Well, I mean, I feel for you. I mean, you were in bands with Ingve Malmsteen and Blackie Lawless. Do you ever feel like you're an asshole magnet? My wife says loser magnet, but that's <laughs> close enough. Uh, Those are some tough individuals to be in a band with. You know, for the record, I'm the first bassist on U.S. soil to go toe to toe with Malmsteen on a daily basis. I came out unscathed. I didn't sweat this guy. Okay, he was 19. In Steeler, I was 27. I was the oldest guy in the band. Ron was 22. So I've, I've seen a lot of stuff going on in the world. I went up to Ingve one day in the kitchen of the house, and I said, you know, the era of Alvin Lee is over. And he goes, who's Alvin Lee, man? <laughs> Obviously, you know who 10 years after was. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you know, it brought something different to the table. When we first heard the cassette that we got from Mike Varney, we were like, wow. But then, when you put him in the format of the Steeler songs, Steeler material is that rocket science? It's that rush? It's that progressive? I don't have to be all over the neck. It's straight ahead rock and roll. That's what you're paying for. That's what you're getting. If I were to play something different, then it wouldn't be Steeler music. You know, Ron gave me the demo. I learned the songs. I'm in the band. Ingve came in. It's all over the place. Now. One of the rehearsals, when he first got there, we, we stopped after a song. Anybody turns around and goes, hey man, can you do something to make these songs like a little bit more interesting? Because they're really quite fucking boring. And I looked up at the drummer, I said, Mark Edwards, our drummer. And he looked at me and it was one of those awkward moments. Like, did we just hear what we thought we heard? New guy insulted the boss's songs. Ron did the quickest slow burn you ever saw. And within a day or two, we started auditioning other guitar players while Ingve was living with us. And after a day or so of that, in three days, 
Yingyuan goes, all right, man. I'll, I'll play the game. I'll, I'll, let's, let's do this. And, you know, he, he started to work with us better. Was, was he a pain in the ass from the get-go, or uh, did it build? My memory is when we first talked to him on a phone conference with Mike Varney, he's like, yeah, man, I want to come to America. I want to play in your band. And I have a lot of real hard charger, go-getter, highly motivated. And then uh, when we got to the airport to pick him up, it was, something happened between the guy we talked to in Sweden and the guy coming down the ramp doing the, doing the Ted Nugent hair flip thing. And it's like, yeah, I'm into 666 and, and witchcraft and black magic. And I think he was maybe trying to impress us or something. I don't know. New guys trying to be in with California, and the, you know, it, it took some time to settle in and adjust. But once we got down to business, it really started to, to, to come together like that. And, but he was just all over the place with the, you know the solos. That's who he is, you know, and that works great for his own material. So at the beginning, it was a little bit of abrasive, you know, until we wore down some of the rough spots. And our first show, we opened for Hughes Thrall. Oh, nice. Yeah. I didn't even know they toured. Yeah, 1983, March 11th, and, and it was uh, Glenn Hughes, Pat Thrall. And I had seen Pat Thrall in New York City at the Palladium when he was with Pat Travers, with Tommy Aldridge and Mars Cowling. I was down front for that. And I met them backstage after the show. So we're on stage, we're playing, Ingbe's blazing away. There's, I look over on the side in the way, there's Pat Thrall in the doorway with, with his jaw open. So after the show, after the whole thing was over, I got to talk to him. I said, I saw you with Pat Travers in New York City, the Palladium. He goes, that's where you look familiar from. You remembered. And I said, and I have both of your Automatic Man albums. And, and it's like his, one of his solo projects with Mike Shree from Santana. And he goes, oh man, thank you. Thank you so much. Did the, the live shows, was Benali playing with him? I don't remember. He probably was, but I don't remember. I didn't get to meet Glenn. I don't know where he was at the end of the night. I don't know. I just got to talk to Pat, to, uh, Pat Thrall. But that was our point. And we're, we're on stage. The house lights go down. And the country club used to have these huge, heavy velvet curtains like the old movie theaters. They're scalloped. The curtain starts to go up. And there's my mic stand going up with it. They're like, stop, stop. Bring the curtain down. Then the curtains go up. And everybody was like, like the... Like the French knight on the top of the walls in Monty Python, Holy Grail, when they pushed up the rabbit, the wooden rabbit, and the French guy goes. That was pretty much the reaction from the audience when they saw the new Steeler. Because Ron said, I wanted to put together a lineup of Steeler, nothing against the original guys. They were all very good musicians and what they brought to the table. Just, he needed to compete with Rat, Motley Crue. You know, the, the other bands that were, were really full draws there. And he says he wanted a band that looked like they've already been on tour and signed and doing albums. He wanted a, a, a real muscular show band that would bring some kind of shock and awe to the audience. I had never played L.A. yet, so that was my debut in L.A. And people had seen me hanging out in the clubs to know who I was or what I did. There's no, no internet back in those days. I just came in from New York, so it was all just word of mouth. You know, I was associated with Kiss, I worked with Thor, you know, this band, I played the Jersey club circuit. They don't know that in LA, they don't know what that is, you know. So, so uh, finally, it's like that was that was the busting the cherry night, you know. They were like, oh, so that's who this guy is. You know? 
So way back in the Jersey days, you already had Sin, right? Sin already. That started out of in 1976. I joined a band called Virgin. They were, played the Jersey Shore. This is not the California Virgin. This is the original user of the name. And, and we played glam, and Alice Cooper, Martha Hopel, you know, whatever the British wave of glam was. And we had the big platforms and outrageous costumes. We did an Alice Cooper set, and we had the boa, the snake, and everything. You know, and then Virgin, we changed members, became Lust for like a couple of weeks. And we changed members, and then came up with, I came up with Sin. Started drawing the first uh, ideas of the logos, the templates. Did the snake with the apple, like that. And, and, uh, and that's kind of where it started. And we played a sin for several years, and then uh, the singer went and played drums for another band, so we dissolved. And I was working for other bands. I was doing concert lighting, uh, 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 I hate to say roadie, but I was pumping gear for bands and stuff like that, you know, just to stay active. And then uh, I hung out once in a while in the clubs in Jersey, because like, the girl I was going out with lived in Jersey, and I had about moved to Jersey, I was living in Jersey City. Uh, the address was 213 Webster Avenue. It, was, it wasn't that far from Journal Square, okay, if you know where that is. Um, and and uh, I got a call from the guys in the Walker Band. I don't know how, I don't remember how they found me. They said, you came recommended, and we'd like you to, to come check us out. So I went to see them uh, in Orangeburg, New York, the Orangeburg Pub, packed. This is back when kamikazes were 50 cents. Beers were a dollar, or 75 cents. You're essentially a live jukebox. Right. Four set, like Twisted right. Sister, four sets a night. Sweat, sweat, sweat. Keep the people drinking, you know? And we played everything from Joe Jackson to Judas Priest. You know, Doors, uh, The Who, Ramones, everything. Everything and anything. And, and uh, so they approached, I met them on a Sunday night. They said, okay, you're coming in on Wednesday. I had like two and a half days to learn like 50 songs. So my debut was at a place called Mother's in Wayne, New Jersey. Huge, massive club. Four or five different stages. And I came on dressed in a white spandex jacket, white spandex pants, white boots. I looked like Punky Meadows. And who's in the audience in the front row? Barry Brandt's cousin, Patty. So there was a tie-in also again to Angel. And, and so she would come and see us play at all the shows like that. So that was pretty cool. I played six nights a week. Four, five sets a night. Tremendous costume changes, because everything's drenched in sweat. And I did that for a couple, we went up to Toronto. Uh, we toured as Spitfire. We started doing originals. And we played about five different clubs in Toronto. And uh, nothing came out of that. It started to get a little abrasive with the guys. I'm not a pot smoker. These guys all smoke pot. That's their, their brother bonding thing. So I get in these, involved with these bands, and I don't, I don't do that. So I don't bond 100% with that. I'm not a party guy, you know. I have a couple of beers. That's it. These guys broke into my hotel room. They crawled around the balcony, opened my slide. They took my Monopoly game, all the food and stuff I had in my fridge. I was walking around looking at Toronto. I come back. I go to my, everything's gone. I hear all this laughing next door. I was having a room by myself. I all this laughing. I open the door. They're playing my Monopoly game. There's the beers. They're eating my food. I said, all right. You know, there's, there's practical jokes, and then there's a limit. That went over the boundary. So it wasn't long after we got back to Jersey, I left the band. And I got hooked up with a guitar player who was on one of Mike Varney's U.S. metal albums. 
volume four, David Ferrara. His girlfriend met my girlfriend, Jersey. He was like an Eddie Van Halen kind of player. So we put together a band called Aggressor, and we were doing heavier stuff than E. Walker, but we started to pull the E. Walker crowd now. So, so I was doing that when I got the phone call from Blackie. So this is like uh, winter, late summer, winter of 82, uh, 81. And Blackie convinced me to come out, you know, in, in 82. At this point, it's sister. Still sister, yeah. And, you know, I'm playing in, in cover bands. I don't have that kind of promo. I don't have a demo tape. We're doing covers. I had newspaper ads showing me playing these clubs. That's all I could send him. You know, meanwhile, he sent me a demo. I had sex drive and, you know, uh, his early stuff like that. And, oh, these guys are heavy. So, and Blackie was broke at the time. I don't know how he afforded to fly me out to California. But we get, I get picked up at the airport. Oh, he goes, how tall are you? six feet and I was wearing boots with heels because oh, it's really important everybody in the band's tall welcome to California <laughs> such things are not necessary in Jersey they don't how tall are you what do you all right yeah you know who knows so uh, we get picked up the guy driving us is Mike Solon Mike Solon is the guy who plays the bartender in blind in Texas the cowboy bartender Mike uh, Mike's brother Eddie was Ace Fraley's guitar tech and a sound man for Kiss. So there's kind of like that degree of separation there, you know. And you know, I when I sat down to watch Wasp go through the, I mean, well, Sister, to go through the songs before I picked up an audition, it took me back to when I was at the loft watching Kiss. There was that kind of electric magic, thunders, got under your skin. And they went through the five songs. All right, come on up. And I played the songs. Uh, I played a little more melodic than Blackie liked. I looked for places where I can add a little step or two in the pocket. And he goes, play simpler. Just basic notes, play simpler. I've never been asked to play simple like that. How simple? It's three, four chords. How simple? Just stay on this note. Stay on this note. Stay on this note. So after two nights of auditions, said, all right, you got the gig, you're in the band. So, you know, like we did BAD, which I kind of I put my own bass lines to, I try to put something really nice and pretty in there. And he's like, keep it simple, keep it simple. You know, and then we, we did uh, Master of Disaster, which disappeared. You know, uh, I did the, I wrote the second verse and the break, the break before, the, the drums before the solo. That song never went anywhere. But Blackie's not a guy to throw stuff away. When uh, Wild Child came out, Wasp fans are going, you know, these two songs sound really familiar to each other. He has a lot of songs. So I think he may have borrowed some stuff from Master of Disaster and put it in Wild Child. Like the verses are the same. Like that, you know? And I was playing a real busy bass line in Master of Disaster. And, and you know, uh, four months down the line, you know, uh, I did the name, we did a photo session, Don Atkins did Motley Crue, early Motley Crue pictures, Blackie calls him up, he says, let's do a photo session, Blackie must have been happy, you don't just do photo sessions to see what it looks like, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, we closed, and we did the demo, six songs in the demo, and then one day Blackie stops talking to me, what's up, well, you know, man, it's not working out, Randy's not happy, Tony's not happy, 
Uh, so you can't stay here, but you're out of the van. And you are to surrender all your copies of the pictures. Right? That was my expression too. What? I didn't sign any disclaimers. He wanted me. He didn't want me to have any proof that I was in the band. He's planning something. He didn't want anyone to know that I was. I went out and made copies, but he wasn't at the house. When he found out I had pictures, he went ballistic. Absolute ballistic, yelling at me. Those are not your pictures. Those are my pictures. It's my band. Blah 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 blah. Luckily, I had some secret to put away, which came in handy years later on my first uh, interview, my first internet interview with Full and Blue Music, and those pictures came out. Now everybody's going, well, the original lineup of Wasps was with Chris Holmes. What's these pictures? Now he has to explain, which he does not want to explain. Who's, who's this guy? Oh, he wasn't in the band. We just wanted to take pictures to see what a band looked like. That's that's your that's your best shot. That's, I mean, you know, and I've had I've been against I've had to go against this for years. So when I got uh, interviewed by by Darren Upton for Wasp Sting in the Tail, the biography, and we're on the phone for three hours, he goes, "You represent a very important missing puzzle piece in the origins of Wasp. The fans want to know." So he says, "The fans from from the first album on to Crimson Idol, they 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 believe you." more or less. From Crimson Idol on, Blackie fans, they hate you. They hate you. I represent some kind of territorial threat. They think I'm trying to tear them down. You know, I, I, go, I go with some of the Wasp fan, you know, the Facebook group, and I'm, I'm treated with distance a little bit. Some people are cool. They've, they've, they've made up their own minds. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the documentation. They know what the truth is, but because Blackie won't admit it, Blackie's fans follow what Blackie says, and they're like, whatever he says. You know? I follow my ears, and it's not the same as what I heard. And you, and you look at the first promo shot, and I look like I'm with three criminals. They're all like, ah, and I'm like, Punky Meadows. Hammer, saw, nails, milk. What doesn't fit in this picture? Right. Thanks for sharing. Uh, so everything that you did in Walk, like you talked about BAD, is anything that turned out on the album was anything like a baseline that Blackie played? Nothing Absolutely that not. you brought up. He but, well, changed it all. When when uh, after I was out, he called Don Costa in. Uh, I found out later Don he had approached Don before I was involved. Donnie kept turning him down. He goes, No, I don't want to play with you. I don't want to play with you. I don't want to Blackie had some reputation. I don't know. He said, I don't want to play with you. So after I was out, he convinced Donnie to come in, and Donnie did one or two shows. Donnie was known for having a cheese grater on the back of his base, yeah. and he'd grate his knuckles till they bleed. And this is back in the days before HIV. He'd hold his knuckles out in the front row, and the girls would lick the blood off his knuckles. That upstaged Blackie. Don's out of the band. Donnie got a gig with Ozzy Osbourne. He did the same thing. Donnie's out of the band. Was he in Craig White at one point? Uh, not that I remember, no. But I, I know before I was in with Sister, uh, Gary Holland was playing drums before we had Tony. And, and that was in Dante Foss, which became Great White. And uh, Tony was in with Jack Russell. Gary, uh, Gary was with uh, Blackie. And then they switched. And Gary Holland went to play with Jack Russell, and Tony came in to play with Sister. Like that. 
and, uh, and and that's that's how that worked out. And, and uh, you know, it is. With, Gary didn't like. A lot of people just didn't like working with Black. It's still the case. I mean, it's pretty much his band. Always was. It's the Black Lawless. I mean, right. but now it's like he's the only original member. Well, when Donnie went out, then he switched over to bass. Then he brought Chris Holmes in. So the whole Hustler Magazine, Hustler Magazine story is, is just, it's just promo. It never happened. Uh, but what's nice was uh, when they interviewed Randy, the various interviews, and, and they said, so is Rick in the band? Randy goes, yeah. He played with him for a while. Did he really come up with the name? Randy goes, yeah, I won't take that away from him. Because Rick did come up with it. He doesn't remember exactly how the story goes, but he validated it. I, I heard that interview, actually. There's an interview of him saying that he came up with the name. Yeah. And then I also have an interview from an old website where they asked Chris about me. You know, and, and Chris goes, oh, well, I, I knew Rick. I didn't know him that well, but yeah, he was in the band, too. And then how Chris kind of spins off and starts a sentence and finishes it with something else. And, and uh he said, you know, he goes, Rick's a good guy. But he goes, Blackie, he validated, he goes, Blackie talked a lot of shit about Rick. He was constantly talking shit about Rick. One thing after another, after another, hates that guy, hates that guy, hates it. What could I have done that could make him so angry? Well, after one of the first Wasp shows at the Troubadour, we're back at, at one of the hotel after party. And Randy told me the truth about why I got kicked out of Wasp. It's personal things over girls. There's a girl I brought back to his house because I was staying there. Well, he would try to pick up girls at the club, so they they turned him down. I don't know about it. But if I the girl comes to me and says, let's get together, well, I'm staying at Blackie's house. Who do I bring to the house? The girl that turned him down earlier in the evening. I don't know this. This is what Randy told me. And when I put that on my original Facebook account, my original Facebook account, Randy saw it, says, take that down. I said, but you told me that. I'm gonna take it. He goes, take it down. Five times he asked me to take it down. I said, no, that's the story you told me. Not long after that, my whole Facebook account got deactivated. So something happened. And, and why would Randy care what Black you think now? It's called hedging your bets. In uh, case a day oh, ever comes, if it ever happens, talk a few years ago where Blackie was, I think, you know, Wasp really wasn't doing much. Well, they were putting stuff out, but it wasn't going that well. So he was kind of taunting getting the, you know, what he called the original lineup, you know, with, with, with Tony Richards and, and Piper and, and Chris. And uh, yeah, that, of course that fell through. So yeah, maybe it was around that time. So, Sin, I want to get back to Sin. On the run. I know. It, was it only released on a picture disc? The the first original version was. Yeah. Was it ever re-released on CD or anything? Uh, well, the second lineup. We went into the studio. Data Strum was producing, and he managed to get out of the guys in the band what I couldn't. My guitar players were Iron Maiden fans, and they constantly had to do it solo, solo. Solo together. Solo. I said, guys, there already is an Iron Maiden. Okay, I dig, I dig Thin Lizzy. I dig Wishbone Ash. I know the double solo thing. That's cool. We can't do it in every song. So Dana got them sounding more like Judas Priest. And it brought in a different singer, a drummer I had never barely met. Kid drove in from Vegas, played the track, four tracks, and went back to Vegas the same night. 
what, and, and it, it was it was like the demo from hell. It's like, oh my God, the labels were like, who are these guys? They've been playing the same for years. Who you know who are these guys? We got picked up by Management 3, which was Jerry Weintraub's company. Which, I mean, Karate Kid, you know, Eagles, John Denver, uh, uh, Neil Diamond. We were the only unsigned band that they were doing a spec deal with. The demo was outrageous. I walked into BC Rich, Bernie Rico Sr. when he was alive, he heard the demo, 30 seconds in the first song, went, welcome to BC Rich, what do you want? No one ever treated me like that before. That was wow. So uh, the second version was heavier. I walk in the studio one night. There's Dana Strom at the board. There's Vinnie Vincent sitting with him at the board. And I walked in. And it's like that moment where, oh, uh, I didn't know you were going to show up. And Dana's playing him our mixes of On the Run. And Vinnie goes, I really like this song. Maybe we can re-record it someday and have you involved, which was never defined what that meant until Let Freedom Rock came out. And there's On The Run with a new title and new lyrics. And they stole my song. Courtesy of our producer, Dana Strom, handing it to Vinnie Vincent. Dana Strom. You are a nice guy in a sea of assholes. You, you hit the nail on the nose. <laughs> and every slaughter show, when a friend of mine tells, comes back, they say, hey, I saw Dana at the show. And they say, hey, Dana. Dana waves. He goes, on the run. Dana goes, fuck you. <laughs> Walks away. And it did win in court. When you threw in the court, the court sided with you, right? Well, I was at I was at Vinny's uh, uh, bankruptcy hearings. Bankruptcy. And when my name came up on the list of the people that he owed money to, he looked up at me, he whispered something in his lawyer's ear, and the lawyer said to the, to the judge, we'd rather talk to you in chambers about that later. So I don't know what the, the outcome was. You know, I called Chrysalis Records, and I said, Vinny stole my song, thanks to Dana. Chrysalis called up Dana, goes, what's this about? Dana calls me up. You can't sue over a hook. I said, really? George Harrison got sued for my sweet lord. Aunt, she's so fine. He goes, he goes, you know, I told Carmine about it. Carmine, actually, Carmine goes, pay him $1,000. Tell him to shut the fuck up. I said, why are you discussing my business with Carmine Apathy? You know, and, and he, Dana goes, look, if you sue us, we'll tie you up in court for so long, you'll have nothing, and then we'll countersue you for being an asshole. So comes the NAM show, the, the, uh, my publicist worked for Vinny, and I got a copy, a Vince copy of the demo that had Let Freedom Rock on it, and I heard it. I go up to Mark Slaughter's there with Bobby Rock, they said, you want to talk to me about this? And Mark sang the tracking vocals on our Sin demo before we got Rick Reed in. I thought we were going to get Mark as our singer, but no, Dana kept him for Vinny. Okay. Again, the whole story about having the, demo, uh, the Mark Slaughter demo with no name on it, how to contact him, that's, that's, that's magazine stuff. Never happened. Um, so, uh, I got fucked. Dana, I mean, uh, Mark and Bobby are like, hey man, Dana was running the show. It's either do it or you're out kind of thing, you know? It's like Dana was, Dana said, just do it, just do it. I said, Mark, you knew. Know that song? Who's saying on it? Because Dana was running everything, man. Dana and Vinny. They kept blaming Dana and Vinny. You know. And now when they get interviewed, 
somebody says, like, hey, so did, what about with the Rick Fox thing with On the Run and the Freedom Rock? Is that true? And you can hear like there's a hesitation. And then they go, yeah. And Bobby wrote about it in his book. He actually validated it. It's in his book. Yeah, we got this song from this band called Sin. Dana did this, that, and the other. But, but On the Run was, I mean, at least for me, was released before that Vinnie Vincent album yeah. on Night Flight, that TV show. They made a video for that song where it's nothing but people skiing. Yeah, snowboarding and stuff. Snowboarding. It's and, on YouTube. And that was before that Freedom Run. That was, was the original recorded. version with the keyboards. Yeah. And somebody changed it. And now it's the second, the heavier version, with the same snowboarding guys, I think, and, and, and waterboarding and skiboarding and whatever, waterboarding. Um, Do you know how that happened? And it says, it has the members, the old members' names. It's like, whoever's uploading the stuff doesn't have all the right information. And I don't remember my password for YouTube. I can't contact these people and go, hey, that's wrong. No, that was actually broadcast on TV and then... But I remember Night Flight, yeah. Yeah, and it was uploaded on, on YouTube. But the thing is that I, at that time when I saw it, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, when you did record the Sin stuff with uh, Dana Storm, obviously, was it an album's worth of material? No, it was four songs. It was only four songs. Yeah. Uh, we got, per what, see, the second lineup of Sin consisted of a few guys from the New York band Alien. They were on Mongol Horde with Thor and Takashi. Um, they came out with what? One of their guitar players played with me back in Jersey. He was a roommate of mine. Alien broke up. He calls me up, says, hey, you know, can you get me a, an audition with Kiss? I said, you owe me $400 for a phone call. We looked in Hoboken. You want me to get you? He goes, yeah, but you know, no, no, no. I said, Jay, I'm reforming Sin. What? You want to come out? Alien broke up. Okay. And he got Frank Starr and his other guitar player, Richie Pagano, and they came out. And we put Sin together. We already got a, a gig booked. We didn't have a drummer yet. So we got a drummer, Mark, Mark Anthony Benkechea, who's now playing with Graham Bonnet. And, and we knocked it out of the We didn't have enough songs. So we co-opted some of Aliens material. And we redid their stuff heavier. So one of the demos we have, I took us, I got a Steeler royalty check. I took us in the studio. We just recorded the whole set straight through in one night. All the songs, one right after another. But then the, 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 the other song that Dana, the demo that Dana did, uh, they made me kick out the drummer. They made me kick out Frank. He said, if you want to get signed, those guys aren't cutting it. I feel like an asshole to this day for doing that. I should have stuck to my guns. We did, uh, through Alien, my point is, uh, we got access to a song called We Got Your Rock, which was written by Marty Coopersmith who wrote it for Joan Jett as a follow-up to I Love Rock and Roll, which was a cover for her. She didn't write that. Uh, but she said it sounds too much like I Love Rock and Roll. It's a, it's a call and, it's an anthem call and answer song. Dana had a sounding like Twisted Sister. That song is like, and Kiss, it's really heavy. Uh, Marty was in, Marty Coopersmith was in Jane the Americans. So he was one of the songwriters in Jane the Americans. So he gave, me, gave us his permission to do the song. Then we did On the Run, we said Don't Say Goodbye, which was an alien song, and, and uh, um, one, was one more song, I can't remember, off the demo. And, and it, was, it was a great demo, it was real heavy, and then I argued with Dana about the intro to On the Run. It's a motorcycle song, it's my homage to Born to be Wild, it's, you can hear the lyrics, it's about a biker, 
going from place to place with the freedom and the wind in his hand. And I said, it should start off like Montrose's bad motor scooter with the gear shifting. Then he goes, oh, everybody does that. It's all that. He brought a guy to play keyboards, but sound like thunder and lightning as the intro. Well, I lost that argument. Right after that, Motley Crue comes out with round, vroom, vroom, round, vroom, vroom. You know, so. What do you got going now? Have you finally met a nice group of guys to play with? Just moved to Missouri. I haven't settled in yet. Yeah. You know, music is going to have to take a, a back seat right now. But I mean, do you still have the passion? Are you still interested in, in starting a new band? Or? That's in my blood. That's great. You know, when you never get a chance to really do it long enough, you either give up or you keep trying to reach that, that brass ring. And it's been a brass ring and pulled away, and a brass ring and pulled away, and a brass ring and pulled away. I get that close so many times. So something says, keep going, keep going. Well, man, I, I am pulling for you because I want to see you with a good good group of guys who aren't backstabbers. And I, I want to re-release the Sin stuff. I want to release the Thunderball material. It wasn't a lot, but I want to release If you go on, on uh, YouTube, Gypsy Brandy. Uh, it was a song I wrote. It was, we, we called it the White Snake song because before I had a title, you know, I was I was watching the videos with White Snake with you know uh, uh, with Tony Catine and well, it's still of the night. And I wanted to I wanted to write something that's in that vein. So at near the end of the song, there's there's a little bit of an homage to Dio in it. If you know what to listen for, there's there's a Guns and Roses kind of feel to the song. And that what was going on at the time, so so Gypsy Brandy is that kind of song, you know. I had those like if it was produced by a White Snake video, that's right. so I want to release that stuff, you know. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the ducks in a row, you know. I'd like to remaster the tapes, you know. So I'm talking to some people. We'll see what happens, you know. Well, man, I am pulling for you, and thank you so much. For giving us this time, you got we got a lot of amazing stories out of you. You can't encapsulate all of this. I know, I know. I feel like we need hours to cover everything. We need to have you back on the show. I, I would you. love to have you on the show. Yes, thank if you, you, if, you. You, if you come back, and, I feel there's so much more you could talk about. All right, holy cow! Was that an interview? By far the longest one we did. And at one point, <laughs> I had to stop. I had to piss so goddamn bad. And he just kept talking and talking. And I was like, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be rude. I'll be right back. I got to piss, man. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, oh, whatever, man. <laughs> you know? And I went, I took a long ass, I came back, and he was still talking. <laughs> and we interviewed him for about another 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, he was there for a while. Yeah, yeah. I think this one is like 47 minutes. And we're supposed to have, we were told to keep him. Uh, 15 minutes and, and for the most part they were around that but uh, Rick had plenty of time for rock and metal and I'd, I'd have him back man yeah. he was a cool he's a cool dude alright well our next one uh, is a repeat guest and, and, and a real fun guy and <laughs> even though I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of his music I am a fan of him and that's Ron Peel uh had an interesting, uh, interesting situation with him before the interview. I was out talking to Bushy, and, and Ron Keel's out there. I don't know if he was having a smoke or a drink or something. And uh, me and Bushy were talking about something. I go, yeah, I go, it was bad. 
I go, but it wasn't like, you know, Van Hagar bad. And he about spit out his drink. He said, that's the fucking comment of the day. Van Hagar bad. <laughs> and, uh, and then we proceeded to talk about how he likes Sammy and how I hate Sammy. And you can tell we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But it, it's a perfect example of how you can be so different from somebody. But cool people are cool people. And, okay. and we laugh and it was like that throughout the interview you know you'll hear i start my sammy shit and he keeps going but this is the nicest guy and uh yeah would love love to have him back on much funner than the first interview we did and that was still good but i think i think ron gets my sense of humor a little bit more now and appreciates it and i really appreciate what a good sport he is and fucking tall yeah that's a tall motherfucker one tall dude yeah, yeah, I'm a more bigger fan than Kyoto. Yeah, I really love that Kyoto band. Those first two albums, and I love, well, first three albums. And I love, I love Steeler, man. I love all that. Yeah, but it's, it's 80s, you know, it's 80s metal. It was kind of like under the radar in a way. They did get promoted well at one point with Tears of Fire, you know, but it really didn't really take, I, I think they only had one gold album, I think. Oh, well, I mean, Gold album according to the human race, not Sammy Hagar, where his gold album sold 17 million on the planet. Yeah, I, I still think uh, Gene Simmons spray painted it gold just to say he produced the gold record. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but could be wrong, but man, what a nice guy. Here you go, Ron Keel. You think about it too. Anything that Gene Simmons puts his mix on with any band, he ruins it, including Van Halen, <laughs> you know? He couldn't even get that right. He had Van Halen, dude. He had Van fucking Halen. And he destroyed it. You know, there's, and what does Eugene Simmons say in every interview? I discovered Van Halen. Please. You just, Ted Templeman discovered Van Halen and put him on one of those. Gene Simmons took him to New York, recorded a kick-ass demo. And uh, Bill Coyne, Paul Stanley denied it, and he tore up the contract. He ruined Van Halen. You know another band he was involved in that uh, di didn't take off, but then took off after he got involved with them? Who? Cinderella. Cinderella. Yeah. He gets Cinderella. Nothing happened. Here comes Bon Jovi, man. Boom. Jeez. And he also, he uh, Gene Simmons, a lot of people don't know this, he introduced Yoko Ono to John Lennon. And fucked up the Beatles. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Devereaux. Yeah. This guy's done it all other than wear a good wig. Yeah. Fucking By the way, what I just said right now, when you said that and I said, uh, uh, could be Devereaux, you know, <laughs> only yeah. squat would laugh at that one. Because that's a terrible joke, but since it's so inside Kiss, a shitty Kiss movie, they'll laugh because they're Kiss plots. Yeah, well, I laughed. You know, I'm, I'm half kissed what on my mother's side, so <laughs> <laughs> my dad hated that shit. He had the right idea. <laughs> oh God! All right, here's Ron Keel. All right, we have with us the great Ron Keel. How you doing, Ron? Uh, I don't know about the great Ron Keel, but you got the Ron Keel right here with you. Thanks so much for having me on the show, the Rock Metal Combat Podcast. I appreciate uh, the opportunity, and thanks for uh, 
including me in your schedule. We're at Rocket Pod here in Nashville. This is absolute mayhem. These guys had their pick of everybody they could possibly want to talk to, and they chose me. I don't know why, but let's make the most of this opportunity. Well, I, I saw him earlier, and I, you know, I just I asked him the question. I go, Dave or Sam, and he said Dave. So I was like, yes. I did not, I did not, I did not say that. Oh, we have an event. It was no, it was me. And then I, you, you had said. That's as bad as Van Hagar. I said that was Van Hagar bad. It's Van Hagar bad. And dude, I'm a huge fan of both lineups. Sammy's my all-time favorite frontman and singer. When he joined Van Halen, I was ecstatic. I love those records. Of course, the David Lee Roth stuff is uh, very special and very a big part of my childhood and our inspiration and all that. The day Edward died, the next day, the day after Edward passed away, I listened to the entire catalog. Top to bottom, from Van Halen 1 up until the latest record, and uh, enjoyed that journey with them. I mean, life is a journey, and Van Halen and all of our favorite bands have changed members and been through those journeys together. And with, just, with Sammy Hagar, they sounded like Journey. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to be the lead singer in the Ron Keel band. That's all I care about. Oh, you're but, right. you know, I keep trying to get them to find somebody younger and better looking who can sing those high notes, but they, they keep sticking with me, so here I am. Well, I'll tell you one thing though, your voice is held up. Yeah, how, how do you do it? I mean, when you get right to rock yesterday, how do you still manage to keep your voice intact? Well, there's a lot of factors. It's a combination of factors, and it's a great question about how to keep the voice in shape at the age of 60. My heroes, like Sammy Hagar, are still good. <laughs> you said David Lee Roth, Mom. <laughs> Sammy Hagar still delivering the goods. At 70, Rob Halford, uh, Steven Tyler, uh, a lot of these guys that are my age, you have to really give a shit. You have to really work hard, you have to care about your product, and you have to stay in shape. A lot of it's health, uh, good genes, you know, I attribute to that, but a lot of practice, man. I sing two, three hours a day. I stay in shape throughout the entire pandemic. A lot of these guys probably just sat on their ass at home. Yeah. I, I did the Vince Neil workout plan and I can sing for about I, 10 minutes. I am rehearsing in my home rehearsal facility every day if I'm not on the road or not in the studio. So I, it's like a workout. It's like going to the gym. You quit doing it, you, you're going to see the effects. So uh, I care about what I, what I do. Um, I was really happy to hit the high note on Right to Rock last night. It doesn't happen every night, but it happened last night. So I was really proud of that. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And uh, you really have to care. You really have to keep working hard and wanting to deliver a great product to the people that are paying money to see you. So um, let's go back. Steeler was not a band formed in California, am I correct? That's correct. Steeler was formed right here in Nashville, Tennessee in 1981. And we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. I'm actually going to have dinner tonight with the founding members, the original members of Steeler. After the convention's over with, we're going to all get together for dinner and a drink and have a 40-year reunion tonight. Mark, Mark Edwards? Mark Edwards was not an original member. Oh, 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 you're talking about the Nashville lineup. The Nashville lineup. Then went to L.A. together. Right. Yeah. And what made you move to LA? Because of the uh, record companies and so on? Man, there was this woman in uh, Tennessee that I was married to that I was trying to get as far away from as I possibly could. <laughs> so I said, 
we're going to go west until we hit the coast. <laughs> and when we got to the coast, we couldn't go any further. We didn't have a boat. But, man, really, that was part of it. was a great decision. I felt like with the new wave of British heavy metal happening in 81 with bands like Saxon, Def Leppard, uh, Iron Maiden, Motorhead, there's, there, there's going to be this tide that comes in in America like like the British invasion was in the 60s for us and then Zeppelin and Deep Purple in the 70s it's going to happen here in the 80s where is it going to happen New York LA maybe but you know I, I made the, the call to move the band to Los Angeles in 81 which was a great decision because we were right in the thick of it with Motley Crue and Rat, Great White, Quiet Riot, all those bands to be a part of that amazing cultural revolution that will never be repeated. It was a once in a lifetime experience, but I made the right move at the right time and it certainly paid off for me. And when you came, when you went to California, it was still the original lineup from Nashville? That's right. And I understand you guys caused quite a stir even before Ingbe and Rick. I mean, you guys were like already headlining clubs before yeah, we Mike Barney got involved? Yeah, we spent a couple of years building ourselves up through that. Uh, brutal Hollywood club circuit at the Whiskey and the Troubadour and surrounding regions and then it was time to go to the next level and I, I thought I should recruit some rock stars and guitar players and so I got Ingbe Bombstein and Rick Fox to join the band and the rest is history. We've made a record in 83 that stands as one of the cornerstone foundations of that entire era. Uh, was at one point the biggest selling independent metal record of all time and certainly put Ingve and myself on the map. Another another myth that I, a lot of people credit Mike Barney for getting Ingve over your shield, but wasn't it Mike Barney that played you several guitar players and you picked Ingve? Well, Isn't anything in this business, it's a team effort. You can't give one guy credit for anything. Because right. if you're in a band or in a business, it's a team effort. You might be the, the leader of the band, but it's a it's a team effort, and Mike Barney had played me on January 1st, 1983. Hundreds of guitar players. We listened to one cassette after the other, and we found Ingbe in that pile. And we thought this guy's got something that nobody else has. And we called him up and brought him to America to join Sealer and, and be a part of that record. Right, and then uh, after Ingve was gone, didn't Steelers continue with Mitch Perry? That's correct. Mitch replaced Ingve uh, and, and uh, Steeler, and Mitch remains to this day the guitar player in Steeler. He did Keel Fest with us a couple of years ago. We did the Steeler reunion in Columbus, Ohio, and Mitch Perry will be playing lead guitar on the new Steeler tracks for my next album, Keel World, coming out next year. Was there anything recorded in the past with Mitch Perry? Uh, no. If you live in the past, you're going to die in the past, man. I'm looking to 2022. Right. You know, no, there was nothing. Mitch never recorded with the band, but he will now. And you're going to hear that next year. And these are new songs? Yes. Brand new music from Steeler, Keel, Iron Horse, Fair Game, Ron Keel Band, all that. So it's going to be like a compilation? Uh, the all, all albums are like a compilation, right? I mean, you're compiling songs. Right. But this is going to be new music from all of my favorite projects from throughout my entire career. It's called Keel World. New music from Keel, Steeler, Iron Horse, Fair Game, Ron Keel Band, Metal Cowboy, 
more. And country music as well. It's going to be a real mishmash of a record, but it, it could be. I mean, I'm not announcing my retirement on your show right now, but you know, it, it, if this is my last album, then I want to leave a mark. I want to, I want to leave something behind that really uh, puts in perspective what I've worked hard for the last 40 years. And thank goodness I'm still really good friends with all these guys. The guys in Keel, the guys in Steeler, Mitch Berry, Rick Fox, uh, Iron Horse, all the, Engbe and I are not friends, obviously, uh, and there's a couple other guys that are not in the mix, but for the most part, everybody that I've worked with the last four decades remains like part of my family, and I want to celebrate that relationship and that music on this new album called Keel World, coming in 2022. Nice. Something I heard you did a, a couple years ago, I really loved, was your cover of Don't Misunderstand Me. I, and what a great song to pick, you know what I mean? It's kind of, I think I, I think it's a forgotten classic, and I think you really did that justice. And I can't remember the, the young lady's name you did the duet with, but it was a superb cover. I loved it. Thank you for that. That's off last year's album from the Ron Keel Band. It's called South by South Dakota, and it's a celebration of the Southern rock tradition all the Southern rock classics from Allman Brothers and uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, Marshall Tucker Band, The Outlaws, and uh, Molly Hatchet and so forth. We were in the studio just cutting our original album, warming up, playing some cover songs, and the engineer was recording it, and I didn't even know. And when I, after about three or four days, he started playing me back the tracks, and I go, man, this is amazing. It's just five guys in the studio having fun playing our favorite songs. We had no idea we were even being recorded. And I thought, now we've got the foundation for a great Southern Rock tribute record. So th what are you gonna add to that? You've got, you know, you got a Molly Hatchet song, you got a Blackfoot song, whatever. You gotta cut that Ross and Collins band song, Don't Misunderstand Me. That was the song that really resurrected Litter Skinner. It was right. the first we heard from Rossington and Collins and right. the, the survivors, the street survivors of that plane crash. And it was a big deal at the time. First new music from them. And I love a good duet. So the opportunity to get Jasmine Kane involved and sing that duet with me uh, was a huge thrill. And that uh, video's on YouTube. Ron Keel Band, don't misunderstand me. Enjoy it. And that was filmed at the Sturgis Rally last year during the pandemic. So we, we actually shot the video at the rally last year and very proud that we could continue playing live and doing shows and filming music videos live at the Sturgis Rally during the middle of a pandemic. Well, you did an amazing job on it. I, I thought it was fantastic. And a great pick, too. You know? not, not an obvious one, you know. I think it, it's one of those songs like people are like, oh, I heard that, but a lot of people don't remember Ross and Collins. And, you to resurrect that and to do such an yeah, amazing there's job. There's songs like that on that record. Uh, Red, White, and Blue, the Skinner song that I chose. It's not one. It's not Sweet Home Alabama or right. Freebird or whatever. It's uh, one of the songs that really resonates with me. That I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that era of Skinner and the uh, Homesick by Atlanta Rhythm Section, which wasn't a big hit for them back in the 70s, but it's uh, one of those cornerstones of Southern rock that really fits on that South by South Dakota record. I'm extremely proud of that album. Thanks for mentioning it. Maybe next one you can do Imaginary Lover? I'd like to hear that. I've done it. I've actually did it with those guys, yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'd love to hear that. I did it with the uh, Letter Rhythm Section guys. We did some uh, rehearsals together back in the day. What a great song. That's oh, a great song. Uh, no song is out of bounds for me. I, I feel like the world is my menu. Every, every item 
on the menu is fair game for me. I, I don't want to eat the same thing every day, and I want to sing and play the same thing every day. I'm going to sing and play what I feel uh, today, and, and I, I appreciate the fans that have weathered the storm with me and gone through those twists and turns because I have done a lot of different stuff throughout my entire career. I appreciate the fact that the fans have, have weathered that storm with me. Well, and we appreciate you because I think it's awesome that you always lend your time to Rock and Pod. And these people love meeting you. They love seeing you at the shows. And you know, you don't have to do this, but you do. And it's incredible. I do have to do this. This keeps me young, keeps me alive, and keeps me connected with the people that are most important in my life. The fans, the podcasters, the music lovers that make this business still continue to survive and thrive in these trying times. Well, you were the first celebrity interview we ever had for our show, and, and it was great, and we appreciate it then. And then when I got to meet you, I believe it was at Rocket Pod 2, and we hung out at Mercy Lounge, and you were just having a good time, hanging with everybody, giving everybody you know, time and attention, and that means everything. And That's what it's all about, man. Thank you. I appreciate you. Keep up the good work. Well, your manager's telling me you've got to get the hell out of here. But I appreciate it. And, and later on, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna work out this Sam Dave shit, all right? Later on, it's just never gonna happen. I might change your mind. Well, we thank you, Metal Cowboy. I don't have a favorite. I love both. I just love both. Yeah. Both are super important, especially to me. So we'll turn the mic off, and you can tell me you really love Dave. But who's still who's still belting it out at this age? Sammy Hagar, baby! Uh, <laughs> all right. You're drunk, Ron. Go home. <laughs> all right. Well, as you can see, man, whether you're a fan or not, you can't deny the guy's charm. And and he's just a great guest. And I'm sure we'll see him. He, he's at Rock and Pod like we are every fucking year. Yeah. So now it's time to get into... Uh, this is what replaced our live show. And I, I know when, when this first came out that, that we were going to do this, uh, I know, Ralph, you seemed a little disappointed at first because you wanted to do, you know, our live show. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we have a lot to live up to. You know, our the first year, we chased everybody out of the fucking room. Uh, we were banned the second year. Third year, it was standing room only to get into our performance. And this year, we had the honor of interviewing Greg Bissonette. Just, you know, just us with Greg Bissonette. And while, yeah, it wasn't the craziness that our normal live shows are, to me, it was an honor to sit next to him uh, and talk to him. He was a very cool guy. Uh, I offered him a beer. He, he declined, says he doesn't drink anymore. But I have a sneaking suspicion he's still gacked out from the 80s. Because this man was a ball of fucking energy. I, I mean, he did not stop. He, he tells some amazing stories. He was so nice uh, to us, took pictures with us, signed tons of shit for us. And uh, I, I was really glad for the, the people got to see us. We still had a really good crowd for him, but it wasn't like last year. And I think that has to do with a lot of people I don't think didn't know because the interviews were in another part, too. Yeah, and, it was kind of hidden in a way. Like, it was next to where we were sitting for our table, but, dude, I kept walking past it three, four times and trying to find it, you know? Yeah, he even asked me, 
I ran into Greg Bissnett as he got there that day, and he wanted to know where what stage he was going to. I had no fucking clue. I'm like, ah, you're either way over there or way over there. <laughs> and he's like, oh, gee, thanks for the help. Uh, but what a nice guy. What an honor. Uh, we do have, a, this is a soundboard recording we have of this. Yeah, and this also really good. This, you know, uh, this is like top quality shit right here. Right, and I want to thank the gentleman who recorded this. His name escapes me right now. All right, here's the one and only Greg Bissonette. My name's Ralph. Oh, you mean him. Ralphie boy. <laughs> hey, Ralphie boy. We got the great Greg Bissonette here. Let's hear it, man. That's one of the world's drummers. <laughs> one of the longest names in drumming. And there is a long history with you. And I got to tell you, it was about five, six years ago. I was very surprised when I went to go see Ringo Starr seeing you play drums. Was that at the Ryman? No, it was in, I, I live in South Florida. It was in the Hollywood. Um, Fort Lauderdale. It was the casino. Yeah. Um, uh, Hard Rock. Hard Rock Cafe. The Hard Rock Huge 30,000 seat casino. That's a theater and a half. How did that happen? How okay. did you hook up with Ringo? Okay. You can't say hook up anymore. That oh, yeah. It's, uh, me too. Yeah. So it's 2003, and my phone rings about midnight. Because it was before the iPhone that came out in 2005. So my landline rings, cordless landline. Hello? Craig, it's Mark Hudson. Mark Hudson, the producer, songwriter, singer that produces Ringo and Aerosmith and Bon Jovi. How you doing? He goes, I'm good, man. I'm sorry I haven't made it out to hear your Beatle tribute band that you have, The Lads, with my brother, Brett Tuggle, and Rocket Rashad. We played this club. I was always trying to get him to come out. He never could make it out. Busy guy. He goes, we need you, man. I'm doing a Steven Tyler album, and we need you on this one song. Great. What is it? You know, it's a shuffle, but it's drum machine. And we need real drums. We need it to rock, you know. I said, great. I'll be there like 10 a.m. What do you say? He goes, we need you now. Oh. I go, well, it's 12 midnight. My son had a bad dream. I'm trying to get him back to sleep. Well, I'll tell you what. If you show up, like, in half hour, Ringo's drums are still set up in the studio. I just finished producing his album. You can use his drums. I'll be right there! <laughs> <laughs> and I get to the studio, and the engineer is my dear friend, Bruce Sugar, who's still Ringo's engineer. And th there's Ringo's drum kit. So I go in. And you know, as drummers, when you get sounds, they call it, let's get sounds. That means the engineer has your drums all mic'd up, and the, the, he wants to hear the bass drum first. Let's hear the kick drum. So for 10 minutes. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> More, most boring thing ever. Okay, snare. <laughs> I was, I'm not doing that. I'm not. I'm, I got a chance to show Mark, Ringo's producer, that I really am a Ringo fanatic. Because I told him I've been going around the world. I'm 62 for 30 years telling drummers all over the world why Ringo's my favorite drummer. Why he's the reason I want to be in a band. So I, I'm going to play some Ringo groups. So now we're going to play Stump the Audience. Name this song is what I did. Come together. Come together. Oh. Next one. Take it to ride. Are you the only ones here? <laughs> Come on, Jonathan. How about this one? <laughs> <laughs> 
So I do like five or six more, and Mark comes in the room and goes, man, I heard you're a Ringo fanatic, and he's your favorite drummer, and you go around the world telling drummers how great he is, but if his son, if Ringo's son, Zach, who plays in The Who, if he's out with The Who next month and can't do it, you're going to do the Ringo promo tour, like The Tonight Show, Conan O'Brien, all these shows. I said, that's like that? It works like that? He goes, when I tell him about you and that you're such a big, you know, proponent of his drumming. He goes, it'll be cool. Does your brother, does he have a hop in her bass? I said, does Dolly Parton sleep on her back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course he has a hop in her bass. I don't really know if she sleeps on her back. She might sleep on her side. But anyway, so we got in the Ringo and the Roundheads. That's the band, because Ringo always plays on his own albums, drums. But he needs somebody to play drums when he goes up front, you know, and sing. So, and then in 08, an answer to prayer. He said, in, in about 07, he said, I'd love to have you in the All-Star, man, but you got to have a couple of hits that you sang, right? And I said, well, that's never going to happen, and we laughed. And in 2008, his manager called and said, Ringo's run out of drummers with hits that he wants to jam with. Want to be in the All-Star band? Whoa! And so that was in 08, and I've been in every All-Star band since. 13 years now. Wow. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And how is Ringo? How, well, let me show you. Ringo is 81 years young. He's the healthiest guy I know. He's just in shape. He just looks amazing. And last week, he asked me to be the guy to interview him for, have you heard of this thing called masterclass.com? Yes. They got all, you know, Carlos Santana, Samuel Jackson, Hans Zimmer, you know, Alicia Keys. And so anyway, I got to host, not host, but I got to ask him the questions. And when you see his picture here, you'll go, man, he does not look or act 81 years old. He's 81 years young. Look at that. Oh, look at that. Nice. Is that cool? Come on in. The water's warm. Anyway, yeah, he's the greatest. And he's a dear, dear friend. And I'm, are you like everyone else? Was it the Ed Sullivan show that changed your life? It was. I'm 62. So it, when I saw them on Ed Sullivan, I was five. Four. But my dad was playing a gig in Detroit. He used to get up at 4 a.m. and drive a bread truck around Detroit, delivering bread to you know mom and pop stores and uh, high schools and nursing homes. But then when his job ended at two, he'd come home and take a nap, and then he'd go play weddings with his band. And he comes out of this one ballroom in downtown Detroit. And he's in the lobby, and he sees thousands of screaming girls, thousands in this hotel, the Ambassador Hotel in Detroit. And he asks his buddy, the food and beverage manager, what is going on here? And the guy says, bud, my dad's name's bud, the Beatles are staying upstairs. They're playing tomorrow night at Olympia Hockey Arena where the Detroit Red Wings play. The Beatles? My kids love the Beatles. My wife and I love the Beatles. Everybody loves the Beatles. Bob, any chance of putting me close to six tickets? The guy goes, but it's the Beatles. It's been sold out for six months. But you're a good guy. I like you. You're a good guy. Come back at 1 a.m. when your gig's over. I'll see what I can do. And my dad tells the story. You walk back into the bar. Food and beverage manager goes, I got good news and bad news. Bad news is, well, the good news is, I got you six tickets for tomorrow night. Bad news is, it's going to cost you 36 bucks total. Six bucks a ticket. 
My dad's thinking, well, I'm making 50, 50 bucks a man on the gig. I'll clear 14 bucks. Kids, we're going to see the Beatles. And I told Ringo that story when we played in Detroit five years ago. I said, Ringo, a couple of blocks from here is where I saw you with the Beatles, man. He goes, after sound check, let's get a car, we'll go. I said, unlike Europe and America, we tear down buildings of historical significance to build parking lots. It's a parking lot now. So after the first song we're playing in Detroit, and after the first song, he gets on the microphone and he says, I think I have it in my files here. He says, uh, I was talking to my friend on the other kit and when he was a kid, he was taken to see a band. He says, and I was in that band. And I'm just going, my friends from high school are here. This is blowing me away. But it was the coolest night because he introduced me as being from Detroit. And then I saw the Beatles. And here's what he said after the first song of the show in Detroit. Maybe, maybe don't record this. I'm so sorry. Anyway, now you can record. Sorry. That's, that's amazing. That was pretty fun. You got to see the Beatles. I saw the Beatles, man. All I could think about was I'm in this, I was in the nosebleeds, but I'm going, I'm in the same room with the four of these guys, man. Freaking me out. Yeah. Awesome. You asked her to turn off the camera, but while you were doing that, I filmed, I got Daily Ross phone and Ringo's phone. Oh, you they got both mind. their numbers. I'll be calling Call Dave anytime. <laughs> Wake him up in the middle of the night. He'd love to talk to you. And that's amazing because, I mean, you played with a living Beatle. Oh. And you played with what in in mine and Jesus Christ's opinion, the greatest front man of all time, David Lee Roth. I have to tell you honestly, my two favorite bands of all time, number one, the Beatles, number two, old Van Halen. Yes. yes. That's it. And then Led Zeppelin, you know, it goes down from there. Yeah. The police. Yeah. I know of I, I know the story, but I'm sure nobody knows it here. A very interesting story how you got the gig with Dave. Yeah, so uh, Myron Grombach, how many of you were at the Billy Sheen and I little thing we did? Yes. So I kind of told this story already, but my friend Myron Grombacher recommended me, the drummer with Pat Benatar, recommended me to Vinnie Vincent, who was fresh off Kiss's tour, Lick It Up and all that. And Vinnie was putting the band together, but he already had another drummer. But he told me, hey, you'd be good for Dave's band. I said, David Lee Rob? He said, yeah. He said, he's in Van Halen. Well, he quit Van Halen, and he hired Billy Sheehan from Talos, and they got Steve Vai. Call Steve Vai's sister. She's setting up auditions. And I went down and did the audition, and by the grace of God, got the nod from the two of them, and then they brought me to Dave's house, and I jammed, and Dave gave it the thumbs up, and then he had Ted, Tep Ted Templeman producer come down and he gave it the thumbs up so after rehearsing for a few months we went up to uh, Berkeley California Northern Cal to a studio called Fantasy Recorders we did half of Eat Him and Smile there and then after Christmas we did half of, that was Halloween of 85 I remember the second day after I got the gig Dave goes hey I'm going to be on the Tonight Show Joan Rivers is hosting uh, and Pee Wee Herman's going to be on there, too. He's pretty funny. So Dave invited Steve and Billy and I to go down. What's this? We're sitting in the audience. I go, I'm in a band with this guy. <laughs> and he's on The Tonight Show. But that was Halloween of 85. After Christmas, we went to New York City to the power station and recorded the other half of Beat'em and Smile at the power station. I'm pretty sure, I know the first song we tracked in fantasy in Berkeley, California, was Tobacco Road. And then Bump and Grind and Shy Boy, and Going Crazy, and That's Life. When we went to New York, we did Yankee Rose, 
Big Trouble, Time Easy, and Ladies Night in Buffalo. An elephant gun was done where? Holy cow. I don't know if that was done in Berkeley or... I got a feeling it was done in New York. Because we're shy boys. Elephant gun was more hot to teach or shuffle. By that I mean shy boy was straight 16 notes. One and a two and a three and a four and a shy boy, shy boy. One and a two and a three, those are straight 16 notes. Triplet. Our hot for teacher was a shuffle. Had a swing to it. So Elephant Gun had a swing to it. And Billy's amazing bass solo in that. I think that was done at Power Station because Shy Boy was already our fast double bass solo. Do you remember uh, how Shy Boy got on the album since it was a Power Station? I don't remember where I parked my car. <laughs> no, I don't have a car here. It's in Los Angeles at the airport. Do I remember how it got on the album? Yes. I joined uh, the David Lee Roth band. Billy was first, then Steve Vai, and the keyboard player, Brett Tuggle. They had already been talking about and rehearsing Shy Boy with their original first guy that was in the rehearsals, Chris Frazier, who is a badass drummer. He played with Foreigner later and a lot of bands. He was Steve Vai's drummer. And I think maybe because he was Steve Vai's drummer, Dave wanted somebody else, not Steve's brother. I don't know what the reason was, but I was going, Chris Frazier, replacing him? And I think they'd already re rehearsed the Talos song, Shy Boy. But that was uh, the drummer from Talos, Mark. Single bass. I decided, man, this is David the Ross band. I gotta play this. double bass, because it's like hot one teacher, fast double bass. So. Uh, that was already in the repertoire by the time I got there. Yeah. And again, it was all leading up to Halloween of 1985. I remember that like it was yesterday. Did you have to re-record anything for the Spanish version? No. That whole album, Eat Him and Smile, the tracks were all used for Dave to go in and overdub because he speaks fluent Spanish. Mm -hmm. And he overdubbed Sonrisa Salvaje. And Shy Boy was... Timmy do, Timmy do, Timmy do, Timmy do. Going crazy, crazy was Puerto Loco, El Calor. <laughs> you know it. You speak Spanish? Yes, I do. I'm Mi nombre es Gregorio. You're Cuban. Yeah. My favorite Latin Ameri Latin music is Cuban. You know Enrique Lavanda? Yes. Do you know? Uh, yeah. How about uh, 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 Changuito? Changuito and uh, Los Van Van, mm -hmm. Jimmy Branley. I take Afro-Cuban lessons from this incredible drummer from Havana who escaped and lives in L.A. now. And you escaped. Uh, no, actually, I was born here, but my parents escaped. Okay. Right when Castro took over, they knew to leave. Amen to that. And thank God for America. Thank God for America. Communism, not so good, I don't think. No. You would attest to that. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, not going to go political here, but God bless America. Yes. Well, man, last night was amazing. It was so, you don't like it usually when another man tells you that in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. Man, last night was amazing. I don't care who's You were pretty good, too. You were really good last night. Oh, my God. Last time I saw you was in 1990, and you have lost absolutely nothing. You were thunderous last night, and it was amazing. What do I owe you? There, there's you, Billy Sheehan, 
and a singer who didn't know the lyrics. It was like 1986 all over again. <laughs> the funniest thing for me was last David Lee Roth is my lord and personal savior, but oh my God. <laughs> What's your name again? Ian. Ian said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> Jesus is my savior. So. Anyway, oh, we're on a podcast. They can't see us. But funny thing last night is Billy told everybody, we're going to tune down which in bass and guitar world means instead of E string, it's E flat. But our pal, the organizer dude, the guitar player, didn't get the memo. So he was in E, and Billy was in E flat. And he hits the first chord, you know. So the singer was an LMNOP, but you uh, ass, and Billy Sheen was amazing, and it was just... It was incredible. I got to ask you, because the musicians and the singers were phenomenal. When we did Yankee Rose, who was the guitar player? Anybody remember last night? That I don't know. Anyway, they were great. And then Shy Boy, the uh, guitar player that played uh, that with Billy. That's a hard song. And then we did Ain't Talking About Love. Anyway, that was super fun. But i blown away when you told me your age. Because I, I think to any musician, I think it's hardest on a drummer because of the physicality of it but i mean you were just oh, thunderous i mean i was really really i mean i i expect you to be good but i mean you were just so powerful is there i mean i guess you never stop so you, you never stop you, know, you want to it's like ringo he would not want to be sitting right now can we do this standing you gotta move he's not gonna retire and stop playing drums so what am i gonna do sit in the couch and watch general hospital you don't want to sit too much. Sitting is bad. Walking is great. Drinking a lot of water is great. High alkaline water. Ringo drinks black high alkaline water, and he is like a machine. He's 81, and he's just up in the morning, the first guy in the gym. You're eating sugar. What's a Cliff Bar? It's healthy, right? 17 grams of sugar. He said, I didn't see you on the cliff this morning, you know. That guy might need it, but he goes, you wouldn't put sugar in your tank of your car. I said, no, I wouldn't. Why would you put it in your body? He's a really healthy guy. But thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm 62. I'm too young for Medicare, too old for women to care. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you can do your own drum fills, so that's perfect. <laughs> and you, out of the original band, you stayed with Dave the longest. Yes, seven years, 85 to 92. Billy left after the Eat em and Smile tour. My brother Matt came in and played bass. And then Steve I left after the Skyscraper tour. The great Jason Becker came in. But then during the recording of A Little Ain't Enough, we found out he has Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And what a sad, sad story that is. But he's still plugging away. And he could only move his eyes. His dad, Gary, Okay, well, like, you know, you use your phone, A, B, C, D, E, F, E. He goes like this and talks to his dad, spelling out letters, writing music with his eyes. All Jason can move is his eyes since he was 19. And that album was 1991. Wow, man. You think about, you know, I'm going to complain because my thumb hurts or something. Think about Jason Becker. It takes his parents about three hours to get him out of the bed, into his chair, with his teeth brushed. We got nothing to complain about. And he was diagnosed while the recording, correct? Well, the thing is, we were recording that album, A Little Ain't Enough, up in Vancouver with Bob Rock. And Jason 
I remember once he was walking from where Jonathan is, he was walking to my drums and he fell. I said, well, why did you just fall? He said, I don't know. He was the nicest, is the nicest guy. He, he wouldn't even, would never swear. He would say, dang. And he fell and he said, dang. His pick even said, dang, my pick. And so he falls and he goes, I'm going to go get this checked out. I don't know what's going on. And a doctor up in Vancouver diagnosed him as wearing too tight of jeans, like skinny jeans. Well, that wasn't the issue. And then people started taking mercury out of his teeth. Maybe it's a mercury poisoning. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mike Porcaro, Jeff Porcaro's brother, I used to play in Toto, and he died of ALS. The most incredibly painful, horrible disease. Anyway. And, he, and he finished the whole album? Did he finish Jason it? finished the whole album. If you want to hear some classic Jason Becker, on that album, David Lee Roth, A Little Ain't Enough, listen to its song called It's Showtime. And drop it. Drop in the bucket. But Jason's solo in It's Showtime, yeah. that solo right there, man, the world just went, what in the world is this? It's Showtime. Check this out. Check out this solo. It's Showtime. Anyway, I'm kind of hogging the show here. Well, it's your interview. All right. It's Showtime. Very Van Halen-esque. Yeah, very, very hot for teacher. Hot for teacher yeah. yeah, so anyway, I'll look it up while you ask me some more. Uh, yeah, so I, I saw you on that tour, and at that point, it was your brother was on bass. On the skyscraper. Yeah. 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 Oh, 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 oh. Eat him and smile. Billy was on bass. No, 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 but on, on Little Ain't Enough tour. Oh, my brother had left after that album, and I got him Todd Jensen. Todd Jensen. So I go, Dave goes, Find me a bass player, you know, that sings. And so I'm scouring the clubs of L.A. And I go to a club called Spice. It was jam night. And my baseball, my softball coach was singing. Sam Kinison. It's the Sam Kinison show. And this bass player is playing. He looks cool. He plays great. Todd Jensen. So anyway, that was that was a fun tour. And that, was that Joe Holmes on guitar for that? Joe show? Holmes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, so anyway, yeah. So you saw that tour, huh? Oh, yeah, it was incredible. That was my first time uh, uh, seeing Dave, my first time seeing you, and I was just blown away. Okay, so dig, dig, that's jazz talk. Listen to this guitar solo. Jason Becker, man. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's cool that you said. Where was that show that you saw? That was in uh, Tinley Park, Illinois. It was uh, Extreme Cinderella, David Lee Roth. Yeah, I know. Extreme. And Paul Geary, the drummer, and I became really good buddies. And Nuno, the guitar player, used to come in want to warm up on drums. He could play some drums. And that Gary Schoen, what a great guy he is, man. Great singer. I never thought he got his fair shape in there, actually. Yeah, better than Sammy. 
I did. You don't like Sammy? No, we don't. No, no. I love we, we Sammy. We are the anti, anti-Sammy. I, I'm so happy for you that you know you got to play with Dave. I am yeah. too, but I love I love Dave more. But I love Sammy. I love Gary. I love uh, you know. Well, everybody loves. Now, Dave. obviously, you said you know Van Halen's. They're number my number two, two, man. two under the under yeah. the Beatles. Old Van Halen. Obviously, you love. Yeah, exactly. Real Van Halen. The first uh, album. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> wings, not rings. Uh, so Alex Van Halen. Oh, you know, what a drummer. Did Did you ever get a chance to meet him? Was there awkwardness? We're yeah, we're friends. It was a little awkward in the beginning because, you know, that was two different camps, you know. Oh, yeah. And so they were pretty, there was a lot of competition. Good, good competition. But drummers, man, we don't care about that. We're drummers. You know, the drummers, there's more camaraderie among drummers. Probably because we're in the back. We're not up there with the lead singers and the guitar players getting all the chicks. We're in the back, hanging out. Anyway, we still get some chicks, but not at 62, but in 26. So anyway, I'm bottom sure line. 86, it was insane, wasn't it? When I'm 86? No. Well, oh, in 86. 1986. It was insane. It was a crazy, it was a different time. It was yeah. what everybody thinks, right? Yeah, there the was no Me Too movement. Right. I see women here that were at those shows that they're never going to go down that road. They're like... It was fun. It was probably a U2 movement. I'm going to sleep with you and you too and you too and you too. <laughs> it was just a crazy time. Everybody was just having fun. You did MTV videos and you looked at the camera. You didn't do the Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, look away. I'm too cool. Even though I spent $200,000 shooting this video, I'm not going to look at the camera because I'm Eddie Vedder. And I love Eddie Vedder. He's great. But it was just a different time. It was about fun. Oh, and you were with, you know, the ultimate showman. Oh. And... I, I mean, that really was a super group. And was it hard to see that, like, slowly? Okay, Billy's gone, then Steve's gone, and, and so on. I mean, Those are my friends, yeah. It was super hard. But I remember when the gig first happened, Steve I and I were walking out to our cars, and I said, Steve said, you know we're going to be on the cover of a lot of these magazines. At the time, they were circus. Raise your hand if you remember Circus Magazine. Is it even still a magazine? No. I don't okay. know. Hit Parader. Hit Parader. Raise your hand if you remember. Yeah. Or how about Metal Edge? Yeah. Metal Edge. Okay. So he goes, we're gonna Cream. Cream. Hello. He goes, we're going to be on the cover of all these magazines. I said, you think so? And he goes, it's Dave. I know so. We're going to be on number one MTV videos. I said, you think so? He goes, it's Dave. I know so. <laughs> we couldn't go to the mall after Yankee Rose and going crazy videos. I mean, you could, but it was like all the high school kids. Hey, dude, you're Dave's fan. Anyway, what a what a dream come true, but, kid. And and also like you know, of course, Steve Vai's coming from Frank Zappa. He's he's coming from Alcatraz. Billy Sheen's coming from Talis. And you were previously playing in a big band before you joined. And that really helped. I didn't know if it would, but Dave asked me a pointed question, and I gave him an honest answer. He said, who was your last gig? I said, well, my last gig was Gino Vanelli, but that's pretty pop, kind of fusion-y pop. And he knew who he was. He goes, oh, Gino, brother to brother. My favorite Gino album. Dave knows his music, man. I know Gino Vanelli. You know Gino Vanelli. <laughs> and Dave knows his music. And he said, what about before that? And I said, well, the Maynard Ferguson big band, I'm thinking, oh, I'm dead in the water now. He's going to think I'm a total jazz guy. He goes, Maynard Ferguson, the high note trumpet player that, that covered Dean from Rocky and Herbie Hancock's Chameleon. I go, you know Maynard? He goes, we're going to do a version of Frank Sinatra's That's Life, and that's big band. I bet you can cover that. I said, you betcha. He said, payday starts Friday. Let's go get some Mex food. 
and we hopped in that lowrider in the Panama video, and we went to this Mexican restaurant in Pasadena, and he put That's Life in in the cassette player. That's life, that's life, with the horns, and that was the beginning of a fun seven-year ride. Well, I, I think that was important to the sound, too, because to me, you know, something like Big Bad Bill of Sweet William Now is that's just as important as eruption to the big picture of Van Halen, so... You having that kind of history and that drum style that can cover all of Dave's idiosyncrasy. You know, it's like his musical yeah. breadth. Yeah, Not but but you can play all of that. So Thank I think you. that added to it. And I mean, that was just a super. And a, you know, I, I love all the stuff, but that original, you know, that Edom and Smile band, that was. Thank you. Well, the most fun thing was he said, "Play a drum solo for me right now." We're just rehearsing, and he goes, "Play a drum solo." I'm thinking, why does he want me to play? He said, "Well, we're gonna." You know, you do your solo, we're going to get the lights a certain way. We're going to make a show of it. So I, the only solo that I could think of to play was the one that I had just played at a drum clinic, you know, and you go through all different styles. You play a little Afro-Cuban, you play some bebop, you play a little reggae, you play a little hot for teacher, but then you play some, some funk and James Brown, Tower of Power. And after, he goes, wow. I was like five minutes. He goes, okay. He goes, I didn't know what face to make, so I made them all. <laughs> he goes, instead of playing a drum solo like that, which it was cool, but it's like a, a solo you'd play for a bunch of dudes with Zildjian t-shirts, you know. He goes, why don't you play a solo that can appeal to everyone? I said, Dave, what do you mean? What kind of solo? And he said, well, you ever play a solo standing on your drums? I've never tried to stand on my drums. I'd break my neck. He goes, well, first of all, why are your bass drums so short? I said, Dave, these are the new 24 by 16s. He goes, Alex Van Halen's were twice as long. <laughs> well, he, Alex put two bass drums together, you know. So he goes, get your drum company to make a double-length bass drum. So from here, well, here to here, and he asks my drum tech to put surf grip, like, you know, sandpaper, he kind of grip on the bass drum so I could walk on them. And he'd come up and walk on them too. We played uh, Everybody Wants Some. And he'd come up on the drums and hit my drums. It was cool. So then I go, well, how am I going to stand on my drum seat and then put my foot over these towels and the drum seat's wobbling and he goes, Andre. Andre McDougal. Andre. Go to Guitar Center and get one of those Buddy Rich kind of thrones where you open it up and you put the hardware inside. You can drill and make it real. So Andre goes and gets one of those drills. The next day, I got a drum throne that's not going to move. You can hit it with a Mack truck. So he goes, okay, get up there. Put your left leg there. Swing your right foot, right leg over those toms and start playing them. And just throw your sticks out and do some cool stuff. Play it. I said, well, my, I can't use my feet. How do you play a drum solo if you can't use your feet? Just play with your hands like a timbale guy. Dave is a smart cat. And then maybe that drum machine you have back there, have Andre put a shy boy beat. And then as soon as you go, and you stand up, and you go, bam, he hits bam. And then you're able to stand up, and you solo, and you gyrate all over your drums, and you have fun. People will love it, I go. That is genius. I never had more fun. If you want to look on YouTube, type in my name. Type in David Lee Roth and put drum solo in. It's the first half, the first three minutes is me playing, sitting on my drums. The second three minutes, two minutes, is me standing on my drums, having more fun than I've ever had 
playing the drums, a drum solo. And it was, that's just the way, he, I think he pioneered that Michael Anthony Jack Daniels bass thing. He just, he's just Very such a showman, you know, and a great singer, great lyricist, and a great friend. Well, something that I know broke my fucking heart, and I think everybody's heart, was the show that came so close to being the reunion, you know, of the Were you there? Smile Band. No, no, but I have it on good authority that Sammy Hagar is the one who called the fire marshal. No. Said there was too many people there. I can't fucking prove it, but I don't think I'm so. Pretty, I'm pretty goddamn sure. But t- can you tell us about that night? I mean, and then I heard like at first it was going to be Mike Starr from Steel Panther, and then it was going to be Dan. Yeah. So I called up uh, Ralph Sands, the singer with Steel Panther, because he had a band called the Atomic Punks, and they were a really incredible good band. tribute band. And I think Dave went to see them. He, he respected Ralph, and so before we got Dave's approval to come and do it. I called Ralph, I said, hey, if, if Dave can't make it, would you be up for singing? He goes, yeah, absolutely. Yankee Rose and Shy Boy, come on, let's go. I said, well, if Dave shows up, are you cool with just hanging? He said, are you kidding? I'd love to be there and watch. So a couple days before, Dave said, I'm in town, I can do it, let's go. So I called Ralph and he said, I'm just gonna show up. And he's sitting there as Dave walks in and he doesn't know that Dave really knows him about him and he goes hey dave i'm i'm ralph he goes i know you bro you're david lee ralph (laughs) (laughs) and that was so funny he thought that was the coolest thing we talk about that a lot we're on a del taco commercial together steel panther is is on screen and my brother and i and lyle workman did the music one dollar tacos get your one dollar tacos at del taco you could youtube that too russ parish the band anyway I'm getting the high five. All right, we, are, I leave. we have to wind it up, but I do have one last question. Was I did see the Eatem Smile Tour twice. Where? Hollywood Sportatorium in my, uh, Florida. Where the sweat was dripping from the ceiling. Yes. That, it, it one lane road, two lane road on the way out. Exactly, there. and all, all trees. Oh, man, that was miles. a cool gig. But it was one of the greatest events, light shows, stage show I've ever seen. Was there anything ever pro shot of that tour? I don't believe so, but I do remember one thing about the Hollywood Sportatorium show. Backstage after the show, there were about 25 Hawaiian Tropic models, Hawaiian Tropic uh, suntan lotion models backstage in bikinis and a little pool. (laughs) One of those was his mom. Is that your mom? Yes, yes. Uh, Trixie. No, but I just remember, I'm like, there are 25 Hawaiian tropic models in bikinis and a little rubber pool backstage. This is crazy. My mom, my mom was turned down by everybody, but she said she ended up with a drummer, so. Your mom? Yeah. How old are you? <laughs> 56. Couldn't have happened. She was, she was young when she had him. Yeah. Never. No, I was, I was a good boy. I really was. I, I didn't go nuts like that, but I, I just remember that sight. And they were all like red bikini tops and bottoms, and there's a pool with water, and they're just hanging around with the lotion. I'm going, this is unbelievable. That didn't happen with Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> and I remember the interview. Look at me, look at me, Dave talking about. You. Give me the ball. Yeah, give, give me the ball. ball. So I gave him the ball. Anyway, we are cut off, but I want everybody to give applause to Greg. Bissell. Thank you, guys. Greatest interview ever. All right. Well, that was our our last, you know, the last interview you're hearing anyway. Uh, but w- what a way 
to to end this episode and can't stress enough thank you so much the, the listeners who donated it was thanks to you we made it and got to do all this cool stuff and talk to all these people and if you like these interviews you like these people all the more reason make sure you're there next year because these people all put themselves out there and you know sign stuff for fans stop and talk to them and you know it, it is a really cool vibe and and just i can't wait to do it again yeah it was great i love how greg remembered the hollywood sportatorium i mean yeah he described it to a t because the sportatorium is a legendary that's what i saw the warning tour name it i saw it their power slave everything played the sportatorium and to, in order to get to Sportatorium, it's miles of, of a forest to get to. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's just a forest, like miles of forest before it and miles after it, you know? And um, he remembered that. He remembered that. I was like, yep, then you remember the Sportatorium, man, <clears throat> which is awesome. And you know what? Sportatorium now, it's all residential. And where it was is a Winn-Dixie now. It's sad, but yeah, he knew exactly what you were talking about. And, uh, you know, he even said he, and this got edited out too, but he said, Kiss fans have an easier time finding a vagina than rock fans have finding the Sportatorium. It's that hidden and elusive. That is true, but I, but notice he got a little upset. I said, dude, it's not Kiss fans, it's Kiss Quats. <laughs> yeah, he said, those pussies. Well, now it's time to go into fan of the week and actually this is going to be a two-parter uh because while i was gone having all my shit you know a couple really bad things happened to our family and one of them is our one only james west of course Uh, and 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 it was a real hard time for me because i was actually notified by you on text message because I wasn't able to get, you know, the phones would work and then they wouldn't, so I couldn't really get on Facebook. Uh, but by all accounts, James West suffered a heart attack, and he's still with us. He, he's doing good, but uh, he has immense uh, medical bills from it. And there's a GoFundMe page. I, I know both of us contributed to it, and I, I know some of our listeners have. Uh, it was shared on the page. I shared it on my personal page. And I would just like to remind people uh, when we post this, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find it, put it back up again, because something like that is really hard uh, on people's finances. Man, you go into the hospital for something like that, you're talking thousands of dollars. And James West is one of us. You know, he's he's part of the family. Uh, everybody who knows him loves him. He, he contributes greatly, and he's just one of the nicest people ever. And. and uh, Huge, huge supporter. Like yes. He's yeah. stuff. He's, he's, amazing. he's just an amazing dude. I love that guy. And yeah, so. Put up the co-starter. I'll put it up again. I put it up like two, three times already on my regular page, but I'll do it again. And on the almost human page. Because uh, right. James is, man, James, James is a true, true friend and a true, true fan of uh, what we do. You, know? you got to love that. Right, and we're just, you know we're just thankful he's he's still here with us, yeah. and, uh, and and let, and let's help him out, man. And even if you think, oh man, I got a lot of money, even a little bit, if enough people give a little bit, you can really help this guy out. And it goes, you know, to to a, 
an amazing person and, and a good cause. You know, this isn't, you know, to, to buy the, the Gene Simmons vault. Uh, this is to help somebody uh, who, who needs our help. And we're, we're family here. Let's take care of our own. And please give General Steve if you can. James, we love you and we wish you a speedy recovery. And if you, if you're a kiss twat, if you donate to James, it'll wash the twat off you. Yes. <laughs> I'll be a twat. You'll be a killer, kick-ass motherfucker for helping our friend out. That yes, it is. Automatically erase the twat from your name. Yeah, it, it's a rock and metal combat douche that will cleanse your soul. Exactly. Your, it'll clean your little kiss pussy. <laughs> All right. And now, now here's something, man. I, I, I fucking hate. I, I, I hate to talk about, but I want to celebrate the man's life, and that's Rock and Ron. Yeah. Uh, Ron was such a great guy. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of people. It, it, it's amazing, but it, it showed you there's a lot of people that either you know don't get me, or they hear me on other shows like Decibel Geek. Uh, you know, they just don't understand. I loved Ron with all my heart, and he would love when I when I would make jokes. You know, at, at his expense, he had a great sense of humor and and a huge heart. And my heart just goes out to to his family, to his wife Dawn, his children. Uh, he was just an amazing individual. The, the episode he did with us, <laughs> the wild side one, is legendary. I, I mean, I listened to it the day past, and my God, that guy was hilarious on the show. And he's quick. He was quick. There was, yeah. a part, there was a part where you said to him, you said, hey, Ron, I understand you hung out with Ralph in Miami. And he goes, that's not true. And I was like, what the fuck? He did. You know, he's like, no, Ralph hung out with me. <laughs> that was an awesome, awesome, quick. He was awesome. He was a great guy. It was great to see him. I, I sat down when I first saw him at the Rock and Pod in the lobby. Um, I sat down with him and just talked to him about his shoes. He had ACDC shoes on, and I can tell he was very, very tired. But he yeah. still had the conversation with me. But I ended it because I could tell it was like. He was just like, his head was so, it was just so sad. And he did show yeah. his uh, birthday, so we got to say our goodbyes to him. Which was nice. Yeah, and uh, it, it was, it was, it was sad to see him in, in that condition, but it just speaks to how strong he was, because all the shit he overcame to make it there. You know, he... It was his final wish, man. And he did yeah. And, and he overcame, I mean, the shit I went through was nothing, you know. It's not a pimple on the ass of what this man went through to be there. And he, he loved music. He loved podcasting. Uh, and uh, we're, we're all better for knowing Ron. And, you know, we, we got memories that'll last a lifetime, you know. Always seeing him at Rock and Pod. Uh, you know, we, we would, you know, he would send me message, private messages on Facebook and we joke and always kept in touch. And as, as much as it seemed like I was always busting his balls and call him a pedophile, it was all out of love and he knew it and he wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, 
you know he was just a real real sweetheart and you know that that's the greatest thing about doing this show is the people we've met you know and the friendships we've made and uh you know there'll never be another rock and ron but there, there don't need to be because there, there was one you know Yep, the and, uh, quarantine show on Destiny yeah. Ron is one of the funniest things I've ever, ever heard in my life. Dude, the, the object of that show was Ron was going to go against Chris in trivia. And, right. And, and Ron had all the answers without... <laughs> <laughs> he still fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> he had all the answers. Chris didn't have any of them. I think Chris even won that one. <laughs> yeah, he did. He close, did. Close, you know? <laughs> I love oh. the answer. He's still giving wrong answers. <laughs> and just so, so many good times, man. So many good times. I miss him. I miss him a lot. Man, it was terrible. You know, I mean, the day before his passing, the Decimal Geek guys did a thing called, you didn't have power at this time. It was called right. Conathon. And they had me on there. They had a bunch of guests. So, uh, oh, you know, with the, but you know what was really terrible about it? They had Ken Mills on it, right? And, he, <laughs> and his audio kept going off. Like, he could, it kept fucking up. Then the next guest was Bushy. And the most horrible part, his mic didn't go out once. <laughs> I was like, this ain't fair. <laughs> we had the pop on there. We could hear him. Here comes Bushy. Full audio. <laughs> and trust me, we, we hung out with Bushy all night. And the funniest thing was when he puked. Look <laughs> at that Jack Daniels bottle and puke like three minutes later. But but anyway, uh, the point is, we we raised a lot of money, and then when they they went off, I went to my channel, and I continued the rock and rollathon over there. And then I did that for a few hours. I was so tired, but I did. Then the next morning is when I found out. And I had another rock and ronathon after that because, you know, that's somebody else, man. If you can donate, because, you know, his family had to pay for, you know, medical, yeah. all that, you know, it's like, you got to remember, this is uh, somebody that, you know, now their, fa- their father's gone, their husband's gone. Yeah. You know, fa- he's got kids, he's got a wife, and they got to deal with this financial burden that, you know, if you can get to them and James West, I would totally appreciate it because, you know, we raised a lot of money, though. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris's channel and mine we raised a lot, a lot of thousands, dude. Thousands. I mean, when, when Decimal Geek, they asked for five, 5,000. During their thing, it hit 5,000. They got so many people watching, so many people telling me. And then I took it to my yeah. channel. I can't remember how much more, but I think it was like maybe a good thousand or even more than that. So, right. you know, it's still, it's a good cause to give to as well, you know? And I'll tell you guys what, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, picking up one of our picks of the week or, you know, a, a vinyl or whatever, you know, take that money, split it between Ron and James and, and, and yeah. I'll hook you up with Mr. X and I'll get you whatever you were going to buy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because uh, seriously, this is stuff, you know, th- this ain't, you know, getting us a hotel room or a plane ticket. This is helping people who, who need it the most, you know, who have gone through some terrible tragedies. And unfortunately, y- you know, you-, you can do all the 
you know, thoughts and prayers you want, but these these people n- need our assistance, and and it's a great cause. And just remember, you know, James still with us and needs us, and and Ron's family's in need, and and they're one of us. Uh, and again, just want to say thank you this episode for for Ron and for James and for all of you who, who donated and. and you know, even those who didn't donate, you listen to the show. Thank you. And uh, we couldn't have had this crazy weekend without you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to all everybody that supports this man, like James. You know, uh, it means a lot. It means a lot to me. Right. And, uh, and again, if anybody is a victim of a natural disaster, I got the number for the Blue Cross. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is true, right? I mean, you didn't get my hopes up, are you? No, no, no. Those cocksuckers showed up. Damn, that's going to be awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> Come back next week. <laughs> I don't think there's there's a hurricane boom that's going to miss us again. I think I'm going to where it hits. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour some water in front of a fan outside my window and just tell him, hey, hurry up. I'm in distress. <laughs> yeah. And they'll do it because... They'll, they'll find to suck on. Oh, those dirty cocksuckers. Find out more next week on the Rocket Metal Combat Podcast.